1: this is our league and this is your league from the 55 yard line on cfl america radio and the sports history network
2: this is a league of a's and bc's it's green and red and gold and black and blue this is a league with two official languages and many unofficial languages. It's east versus west, wheat versus iron, love versus hate. This is a league where superstars are extraordinary and ordinary at the same time. It's a league of ice, of fog, of mud and wind. And for one Sunday in November, it's the nation's glue. This is a league as diverse as a country. A league of Jacksons, Kwongs, Johnsons, Moskus, O'Shea's, and Haji Razulis. This is his league. His league. Her league. Their league, and their league. It's my league, and it's your league. This is our league.
3: Hey and welcome to the 55 yard line with Greg here and Scott. And we just wrapped up a great interview with Paul Woods and talked with him at length about his book, The Year of the Rocket and uh, other things going on in the CFL world, including XFL rumors and, and such. So but uh, before we before we get to that, before but before we get to that, Scott and I are just going to talk real quickly here about the playoffs this past weekend and kind of give our great Cup predictions. So what say you? Yeah, that's right. Uh, if I remember correctly from the Twitter feed, you didn't get a chance to see much.
4: I didn't see uh, either one because I don't do or I don't get uh, ESPN news. Even though I have the ESPN Plus app, you've got to have the subscription if it's on one of their, you know, channels or whatever. So yeah, I didn't get to see the, you know, and I'm a Ticats fan, so that kind of sucked to not see them. And then the second uh, game, I was, at a, I was at a G League game, so I couldn't have seen it anyway. But yeah. Uh, well, glad that the Ticats are in it. It was, you
3: know what? I mean, the game started, you would have, I mean, the way the the Argonauts were playing and actually the way the tie Cats were not playing by halftime, I'm like, Hey, the Argos are going to win this thing. And the Ticats came more back literally um, and figuratively. And um, yeah, so it was a great game. And uh, apparently even even uh, I wouldn't say it was a better ending because it didn't end well for at least one Ty Cats fan um, and one Argos player after the game because video went around. Oh of, yeah. Uh, I don't know what was you know I saw that I'm like oh wow and uh, pretty it pretty much went viral and I've seen a lot of stuff on Twitter talking about it and yeah you never want to see that at a game.
4: No, you just know It's bad. I mean that's just it's a bad look regardless. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, even and here and in, Especially this
3: – Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. No, even here in Chicago where we've got some great rivalries in that between the Packers and the Bears, you never see anything like that.
4: Well, this this whole season with the CFL, I mean, they don't need any more bad news. I mean, it's been kind of, you know, just with the the level of play and, and you know, it's like the commissioner just kind of disappeared. I assume they still have one, but <laughs> – Yeah, <laughs> do you know what?
3: You know what? It's a good point. And we were talking to Paul. I didn't bring that up, but yeah. Where is, where has Randy been? Because it, to me, it just seems like the league is kind of rudderless right now. I mean, you know, I mean, in other leagues, you still, you always see the commissioner pretty much out front, but I don't recall seeing anything from the league. I mean, from the commissioner about what happened. So I'll be curious to maybe you know, maybe I missed something on Twitter. I mean,
4: I could, that could very well be the case but
3: yeah it just seems like Randy's kind of been hasn't been around much
4: nah it's just you know I, again this whole season's just been i mean i'm glad they played it obviously you know especially after losing right. the season last year but it's you know just the level of play and, and again i haven't been able to watch all the games so it's not like i've been this huge student of every game being played but i've had the misfortune usually the games i have watched have been mostly boring and that's yeah. That's not what I want to see when I'm watching the Canadian football league. You know?
3: Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm right there with you. And uh, we had the Winnipeg, Saskatchewan game, um, which was a great game, but ulti- I mean, anybody who watched that, the Rough Riders really gave them a good game. I mean, they, and there were some turnovers and I'm thinking, Oh, I think they might, they're going to, they're going to give them a run. And they did, but ultimately, you know, the big blue machine just wore them down. And I, and um but it was cool to watch, you know, both those games had snow going on. There was that element. So I'm looking forward to next this coming weekend when, you know, thank God, the game will be on a, is it going to be on ESPN or ESPN2? Usually it's a It's two.
4: ES, it's ESPN2. Yeah. And that's right. uh yeah, it's, that's a big day for me. I mean, the Great Cup is all regardless of who's in it, it's always a, a big event for me, but the fact that I'm a Ticats fan and they're in it makes it Makes it it's gonna,
3: yeah, it's going to be an interesting uh, Sunday night for me because I will have the Bears Packers because they're playing a night game. They're playing the Sunday night game. And then you've got the Grey Cup going on right about the same time. And so it's going to be another full day of football. And uh, it's yeah, I'm looking I'm looking forward to it. And it's a rematch. I think the Ticats have a chance. But, um, yeah, I'm pretty much going to pick the Blue Bombers. I can't see how they can lose.
4: Yeah, I'm going to – I mean, I'm rooting for the Ticats, so I'm going to pick the Blue Bombers too because every time I've picked against Hamilton this year, they've won. So I'm Blue Bombers all the way for the Great Cup.
3: Yeah. And then after, you know, after this game is over, then, you know, like we'll see, you know, hopefully hopefully we'll know more about what's – we'll get a better feel of where we're going, the league is going into the next season. But, you know, after, you know, after our talk with Paul – I. There's a lot there's a lot more questions and answers at this point in terms of. Yeah.
4: And, and I always love to hear from him because he he knows a whole lot more about it than we do. So when he when he talks about, you know, when he has a certain uh, idea of how he thinks it's going, I'm going to I'm going to trust his gut <laughs> a lot Me more too. than a lot of people. So it's very interesting. I think people are going to really, really be interested in, in what he had to say.
3: Yeah, and I love how when we talk with him just about kind of media coverage and everything, and he tells you, hey, who to listen to, who not to listen to. And I did appreciate that because, you know, I've kind of been, you know, I I kind of get, and I'll say it, I get on my high horse a little bit about recording and facts and accurate. And it's one thing to to report the fact that there are rumors out there. It's another to report rumors as fact. And sometimes there's, there's a blurring of the lines, and I think that happens a lot here down in the States. But to me, I've always, when anything's been going on in the CFL, I always trust people who know the league, have reported on the league for years. year. For instance, like our, our buddy Rob Vanstone. He, um, you know, has written for the written about the writers for years up there in Regina. And, um, you know, Paul talks, we talk to several other people too. So, but it's going to be, it's, it's. I think we're entering a new era in terms of, you know kind of with the cross culture and there were a lot of CFL a lot of new CFL fans this year that came because of the XFL talks, which is great. And I was happy to see that and got some great podcasters out there like Mark and I'm sorry, um Reed and Paul with the Mark cast and then our buddies at the Red White and um red white and blue podcast. Um red rouge white and blue podcast. I'm sorry Oz I'm I'm, I'm sorry Joe. It's um so you've got just a lot of new American fans that are, that are starting to learn the game. So hopefully that bodes well for the future. And, you know, the XFL starting back up, and who knows what's going to happen with the USFL, where it's going to be.
4: Yeah. And last you heard,
3: you think Birmingham may, is might might be out of it right now?
4: Well, you know, again, that, this is just speculation on my part because the, the soccer team, the USL soccer team in Birmingham, signed a lease on Tuesday with Protective Stadium. So I'm just assuming because you know the USL stadium in a non-pandemic year starts March, so right. they would be playing the same time the USL, the USF, the new USFL plans to play. Obviously, they're going to look for home dates, and since they're the primary tenant, right. I don't know how the USFL could use it as a hub. to try Around the soccer team schedule, not that they could play at Legion Field. Well, that's what I was going to ask
3: you. Could they they just do the whole USFL season at Legion Field? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they, they could do that, but
4: you know, my question is, you know, city leaders were all hyped up about it and saying that an announcement was imminent, and that was more than a month ago, and just nothing. I mean, there's been absolutely nothing, and that's just that's a red flag to me. Yeah, I mean, you'd think they at least say, look, we're still negotiating this is what we're doing. And it's just, I don't know. It just makes me wonder if, you know, maybe Fox decided to do something else. I mean, it's since this first season's basically just going to be a, a job fair TV
5: right.
4: deal. Anyway, you could, yeah. you know, hold it in some small stadium and just stage the games there. You know? Yeah. And, and so.
3: too, I mean, it, when you and I both know, when you have stuff come up like uncertainties, it does in a way kind of, It it solidifies the fact that the USFL is going to be minor league football.
4: Period. And, and, you know, in my thing, I mean, I, you know, whether it's the USFL, XFL, major league football, whatever, blah, you know, I want them all. I've said it a billion times. I want them to succeed. I wish them the best. But, you know, with Birmingham trying to put all this money out there, I don't want to see Birmingham left holding the bag. So if there's any question about what's going to happen, I would rather Birmingham not be the hub and not be left with all this money spent on something that may or may not last, you know? All um, right. So, but that's just me. That's just one, one guy's opinion.
3: Oh yeah, I know. but I agree hundred percent with you. It's um, yeah. So, all right. Well, it's, it's going to be an interesting, uh, it's going to be interesting to see where we go into the new year in 2022 with not only the USFL with what's going to happen with the CFL, but obviously, you know, the XFL is starting to starting to ramp up, which is good to see. It's nice to see that there's a timetable, and
4: things are starting to take place. And uh, and it's kind you know, of funny to me that their training camp, I believe, or their combine is going to be in June of next year, which is right in the middle of the USFL season. So that's kind of funny.
3: Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a – the thing is, I mean, there's plenty – there's a lot of football play guys out there who want to play football. So, you know, maybe – I think, you know, possibly, and I talked, you know, I've mentioned before paradigm shifts coming. Maybe this is all part of it. And, you know, maybe in 2023, you know, even though they called off talks, maybe we'll have a a combined league or something with CFL and who knows, maybe the XFL will buy the USFL. I mean, so many things could happen between now and then, and we could have, we could still be wearing masks and uh, getting booster shots for, you know, another unnamed variant out there too so there's a lot of things coming down but the one thing that is coming down for everybody um we're going to be talking with paul woods here at the end of this but actually before you listen to paul woods got a little i'm i'm going to toss something in there that i know everybody will enjoy about john candy and the argos and um and then after that it's our talk with paul woods and buddy until then until next year have a have a Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And obviously, you and I will be talking quite a bit on Twitter in the meantime.
4: Sounds good. Happy holidays, folks.
3: All right. Hey, everyone, have a good one. And to all our friends out there, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
5: Unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t shirts, long sleeve shirts, cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, ROW number one, for access to the full Row One catalog and for gallery prints and gift items. Plus, get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row One Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes.
1: I was out playing on all the special teams, and I guess my legs had just kind of gotten tired and realized I was running down on the kickoff we had just scored. And all of a sudden, my legs, I just feel like it popped. The trainers come out, and, and I'm down. I'm like, man, I'm trying to think. Did I blow out my knee? Just, you know, what's going on? And I look up, and John's, you know, he's coming across the field like this. <laughs> you know, he's just, you know, like, with, with intent. Like, he's coming, and I'm like, oh. Because, you know, you're embarrassed. You know, like, not the owners coming out
6: of the <laughs> <laughs> I go back to check. John's on one knee doing the Our Father. He's praying with Carl, who was a religious man at the time, about their injury. And, uh, I just looked at the moment. No owner is doing this. This was passion.
7: I think family always comes first, and then, you know, Argonauts probably, and then his acting. I don't remember him doing too many movies or anything during that time period but um, definitely, I think they came second, if
8: not first.
1: He really did live and die double blue. I might have been one of the last persons to talk to John before he passed away. He called to tell me that the team was going to be sold, and that they would no longer be involved. They decided to pull out his partners.
3: Did you get the sense that he was sad?
1: Oh, absolutely. He went along with the decision, but uh, yeah, he was sad. I get on the plane that morning. I fly up to Vancouver, and it comes over on the radio that uh, John Candy just passed away that morning uh, down in Mexico doing his film. And I had to stop the car and pull over to the side of the road. I just couldn't believe it.
9: Who wants an orange whip? Orange whip? Orange whip? Three orange whips. John Candy was a, a fide movie star comic movie star. Where do you live? In the city. Do you have a house? Apartment. On no a rent? Rent.
2: What do you do for a living? Lots of things. Where's your office?
9: I don't have one. He is an icon.
6: John, is work still fun for you? The work is, and I tell you, the business part of it wears thin for me now. Uh-huh. Uh, that really does. I, I, The negotiations on all the people and everybody's your friend and it's your new best friend. That's it for the- I'm going through that point in my life. I think right now I'm sort of cutting back and reflecting and looking back. What do I want to do now?
10: I was uh, on the board of directors of Hollywood Park Racetrack. On the board was Harry Ernest. and uh, we were talking one day, and he just said, uh, "You know, you, you like Canadian sports." He said, "I just uh, bought into the Toronto
6: Argonauts in the CFL." I said, "Oh, that's interesting."
2: John loved it
6: more than anybody. And I think one of the reasons that Bruce McNall actually pursued the Toronto Argonauts is because John Candy so much wanted to be a part of it.
9: In February 1991, Bruce McNall, Wayne Gretzky, and John Candy purchased the Toronto Argonauts. We bought the team for $5 million, and John and uh, Wayne each took
10: 10%. I realized one thing at the time, though, with John, and that is that, you know, this could get expensive. So I said, you know, maybe we should cap John. So we did. We capped him at a million dollars, I think it was, so that he couldn't lose more than that, no matter what happens.
9: Going into ownership with Bruce McNall and Wayne Gretzky was a perfect fit for John Candy. McNall was a successful and high-profile sports owner who, in dramatic star-studded fashion, Had turned the Los Angeles Kings around and made hockey a hot attraction in Southern California. McNall saw similar turnaround potential in both the Argonauts and the CFL. But for John Candy, purchasing the Toronto Argonauts was about much more than business. It was personal.
11: When we first uh, started Second City, we used to call uh, John, Johnny Toronto. You know that that you know th- this kind of this kind of dude, right? Because he just kind of had his finger on everything, and that character kind of morphed into Johnny LaRue. Noon.
6: I'm Johnny LaRue.
9: John
11: buying the Argo was was that he? We told him, John, you're actually now turning into Johnny LaRue. You now own a football team. It was just kind of like this like uh, Argonaut
12: title wave kind of hit our family. You just see there's excitement all around about it.
7: It got to the point where, um, on my mom's birthday, we had a Rose Bowl. So we would actually create our own football teams. We'd get everyone, we'd get jerseys made, and, you know, we had teams and we'd play together.
5: How great is it he becomes an owner of his hometown team? Just think about it, how great is that? So he was very, just loved it.
9: John Candy was born in Newmarket, Ontario but grew up in East York, a Toronto suburb. His father passing away when John was five, Candy didn't gravitate to football until high school.
3: Played left tackle uh, on the offensive line. He was a funny guy, but when it came to football, he was very serious about being good at what he did.
6: Oh, my goodness. Wow. From 1967, junior champs at Neil McNeil. That was his forte. That was his outlet.
10: the Hamilton
6: 26-yard run Cookie Gilchrist, Dick Shadow, they were our football heroes for sure. John definitely had seasons tickets. That was a quasi-religion for him, you know, going to Argo games.
0: He wanted a career
7: in football. When he was in high school, He's like, okay, I'm going to be a football player.
12: He had a like, pretty serious knee injury that prevented him from playing further, and I think that he was a... Uh, saddened by that because I, I know he loved football very much.
8: I had started a talent agency and we had opened an office right across from Eaton's College Street and they had a cafeteria in the basement and a couple of times I had bumped into this young man and we just got along great. I asked him what he wanted to do. Did he want to be an actor? And he sort of said, no, he wanted to be a football player. But he'd been injured, and it just so happened that that day um, we got delivered to us a commercial, and they were looking for young men to play in a football team. To his surprise, he got it. And I told him, here, you're playing a football player now. You can say you were a football player. And he said, yes, but one day I'm going to own the Argos. And I thought it it was a joke. And he was serious. He said, no, I'm going to own the Argos.
5: It's become the National Football League's Rite of Spring. And hello once again, everybody. I'm Chris Berman. Last night... Rocket Ismail decided to lift off and land as a member of the Toronto Argonauts of the Canadian Football League. In
9: 1991, Raheed the Rocket Ismail out of the University of Notre Dame was the projected number 1 overall pick at the NFL draft. The Rocket has done it again. Forgoing going the NFL. Ismail signed a record 4-year, 18 million dollar contract with Bruce McNall and the Toronto Argonauts.
5: I think it was more of a shock than anything else. He's not going to the Dallas Cowboys. He's going to go play in the CFL. Candy was thrilled.
9: Overnight, there was a buzz in Toronto. How
11: many tickets are you looking for?
4: Phones have been ringing off the hook.
9: Everyone was talking about the Argonauts. We you welcome
7: John Candy and Maureen O'Hara. As a... Uh, Has John tried to sell you an interest in in, in any football teams at all? Not. Mm. Thank you.
9: (laughs) The Argonauts, yes.
6: You're going to be involved in picking players, and all that stuff. I'll be blocking for them.
9: (laughs) (laughs) That kind of money, I'm looking after. That was just John improvising. You know, he is such a fan. He was so great that way. Living his dream as an Argo owner, the 40-year-old movie star put his career on hold and became a tireless promoter
5: of his beloved
9: Argonauts.
5: The vision was every game was going to be an event. We wanted to make every game a special event. And we kicked it off with the Blues Brothers at halftime and post-game. First
9: of all, I would wax his car and do his lawn if he asked me, okay? That's how loyal and, and, and how much I love this man he said hey jimmy you want to come up with a jet with me and wayne and Bruce and a bunch of people for the opening of the argonauts game i want when's the date
6: it was so exciting uh to have everyone talking about the cfl again
4: you know mainly i was there because john was my friend that's why
0: Yes, he lived in L.A., but he really loved being Canadian. I think that was his passion for, you know, being a part of this team. He wanted to bring his friends up there and show them a good time and also show him what he was, you know, proud of.
11: It was showtime every week. The Sky Dome, when when the roof opened, baby, it was showtime.
10: I remember the league needing a shot in the arm.
5: And they absolutely provided that. It was the place to be.
2: We came to see the show. All these seats used to be empty
4: last
10: year. you have a major movie star who would go to every little nook and cranny to sell not only the Toronto Argonauts, but the
5: whole CFL? All
8: of Vancouver, are be there?
5: Yeah. We toured the country. We went to every, every CFL city.
6: And you know, he was flying around on his own nickel. At the time, the CFL had a rule that you couldn't lift the blackout unless it was a sellout. Look at this! John would then do 24 hours of media, and pleading to the fans, come buy a ticket, we're lifting this blackout.
9: Thank you all for showing up, it's terrific. You know, there are tickets still
5: available. We would get up at four o'clock in the morning, and we'd get in the car, and we'd drive to every morning radio show, John Candy, who's been signing autographs for
6: the last hour or so. We'd rally the community, we'd go to charity events. I believe we busted every blackout that season.
2: He truly enjoyed
6: going to the games and he loved being a part owner of the Toronto Argonauts, there's no question about it.
9: Promoting the league was the dream role for John. But the real payoff, the heart of the matter, was his love for the players. He wanted to hang out with the players, not just in the locker room. He'd invite the guys out. You know, he, he'd call you if you were injured. I think he would have been with us every second if he could have been.
11: You know, I remember in Calgary when I had a concussion and I remember John came into the hospital and everybody was like, oh, John Candy's your John Candy. So, and I, so it made me feel even more important because i I'm was like, yo, your John Candy coming to see me.
2: His heart was so big. Like they don't have a cappuccino machine in the locker room. You know, we, that's,
7: next thing you know, one shows up, you know. He pulled out an old pack of matches,
13: and he wrote his name, and uh, he put candy on it, and he gave me his phone number, and he said, anything you guys need, anytime, I'll always be there for you.
1: You know, we can't tell him, but here I'm telling him, he did a wonderful job. He touched a lot of us. With John's passion for the game, you didn't want to let him down.
10: Dunnegan looks to the end zone Touchdown We didn't lose one game at home that year Which included the Eastern Final Where there were 50,000 fans in the stands the final
6: score, 42-3 The Toronto Argonauts are heading for the Grey Cup
7: Going into the Grey Cup game I remember John was like Make sure you guys put your helmet up there one more time <laughs> You show them who's gonna dictate the game, and I, I, I get goosebumps still talking about it. The most
10: inspirational moment for me that entire year may have been John Candy standing on the sideline in a leather coat in 20 below at the Grey Cup. He's not up in the press box where the, you know all the heat and all, he, 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 he is down on the field with his
11: guys. And now all of a sudden,
5: I'm not as cold
6: the 1991 edition of the Toronto Argonauts. 36-21 victors over the Calgary Stampeders today at Winnipeg Stadium. And it's appropriate...
7: This is us- beaming, you know? It's like this is, this is, a, this is so happy.
6: We had speeches. I got up there and I said, this is about one person. John, please get up here. John got up there and got emotional, and he started crying. To own a team, And to see that team in one season go from, I wonder how they'll do, to winning the great cup, was as thrilling for John as anything could have been.
11: We had the parade uh, downtown, and it was just like, man, everybody was so happy. And man, I just remember jumping on his back and hugging him, man. He wanted to do something special for the city and he was actually able to accomplish it and to, and to be a part of it, it really made me feel
1: good.
6: The pride that he must have felt as a, as a local boy, hoisting that cup, the parade here, that, that must have been huge for him. 91 was, was unbelievable. He brought back the, the
5: passion, the glory of the, of the Toronto Argonauts and of the CFL.
6: He look back on it and it seems it seems like it was um, a flash in the pan it seems like it was just pff, it was an explosion of energy of good times of passion love of pain of sacrifice and it was just pff, gone in
9: 1992 the fairy tale came to an end despite winning a great cup the previous year the high priced argonauts were losing money Star quarterback Matt Dunnigan left for Winnipeg, and the Argos missed the playoffs. McNall's commitment to the team began to
10: waver. I had a big responsibility in my mind to, to John and Wayne. Uh, John was capped in the investment he'd made at a million dollars, but Wayne was not. So we both had to put poor money in, and I realized, what can we do to change? I mean, we, we won the Grey Cup, we had Rocket,
9: I didn't know what else we could do to bring revenues in. But Candy was determined
12: to turn it around. He was always looking at angles to try and, like, boost, you know, ticket sales or uh, just keep, you know, morale going in the stands and on the, on the field.
9: The rocket left for the NFL. And during a three-win season in 1993, Candy uncovered a heartbreaking truth.
6: Do I remember the last time I saw John? Uh, Yeah, John and I had a difficult conversation, actually. Uh, John was not aware that Bruce had asked me uh, to find a buyer for the team. John felt that I uh, betrayed uh, him and the trust of the club. Um, At the time, I was doing what my boss told me to do. I talked to John about this, uh, but, you know, we
10: said, John, we're going to have to do something. And it had a lot to do with my own financial situation at the time, because I, I had major debts out there trying to find a way to cover everything. The CFL was one of the assets. It was losing money.
9: As many assets I had, a lot of it was a house of cards. I knew when money from our ticketing office was going to L.A., pay hockey bills you know there's something going on John was emotionally invested he didn't want to sell he was passionate about it it meant everything to him
10: he knew what had to happen he nursed to the issues uh, emotionally though you know he he bore his heart in his sleep and the tar- the Argonauts were a, a part of his family and for him just to walk away from a family member no, it wasn't going to happen with John.
12: I could definitely tell, when they were in financial trouble, he was having a hard time with it.
11: It's a Simon and Garfunkel uh, reunion concert, uh, December 93. You know, at that point, John was uh, was having what he called panic attacks. It happened may- maybe a couple of times that night, where we would start walking off the stage, and then he would have to stop. And and I uh, and I would just look over and go, panic attack? And he'd go, yeah. Those last few times that I did see him, he
12: was flying in, really tight schedule, you know, coming in just for lunch, you know, and it's like, uh, he had a lot on his mind.
10: The team was sold very quickly, and uh, I think he was in Mexico shooting the film when that did
12: happen. He got a phone call from uh, Toronto and they'd been told that the team was sold. I know that that really hurt him. If there's any memory of it, it is he had love for that team and, um, and every player on that team. I wanted to call him. It was actually the night before uh, he passed and uh, he liked that the support.
9: And I decided not to do it. I don't want to bother him in case he's sleeping or he's resting. I feel really bad that I never made that call.
6: Good evening. It was news that caught everyone off guard. The laughter stopped, and there were more than a few tears. Canadian actor John Candy has died.
1: I remember I was at work, and I thought my brother was kidding because he called me up on the phone. And he, I said, man, quit messing around. He said, no, I just heard it on the radio. You think about how many people have the opportunity to help people, but don't. And then you think about somebody who goes out of their way and doesn't have to. And so that's why it was so powerful, like even now.
7: That little
12: star right there. We, you know, we put this on uh, John's, on our jersey the year, that next
7: year in, uh, in remembering John Candy. You know, this will go uh, to my grave with me. Um, That's just how much he meant to me.
10: The only regret I have is that my fiasco that I created brought the whole thing into a mess where I had no choice but to sell it.
12: He's received many awards. I think there wouldn't be a higher honor for him. He'd love it. For him to get his name finally put on it was, you know, a very big deal for us as a family, and you know I know that uh, he's uh, somewhere, you know, smiling because of it. I think with anything in life, you love, you,
6: you don't care if you get paid or not, because you, know, you love doing it, because you have that passion for it. If you don't, if it's a job, then rethink it. If it's, uh, you know, like anything you do, you have to do it from your heart.
7: Hi, I'm Oz Davis of the Truth the Goats podcast here at the Sports History Network. I'd like to take a minute to tell you about quite possibly the greatest website of all time, newspapers.com.
8: If you're listening to this
7: podcast or any of them at the Sports History Network, you're probably into sports history. And you probably also know that for learning about anything prior to, say, 1990 online, the typical search engines like are nearly completely useless. But then there's newspapers.com. Newspapers.com gives you access to over 640 million pages worth of news from North America, Britain, Ireland, and more dating from 1798 to last week. Do up a search for Super Bowl I, the 36th Berlin Olympics, Wayne Gretzky's first game, whatever. Newspapers.com takes you there with historical flavor that search engines like... Just don't give you. And now get a free one week subscription to newspapers.com by visiting sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. With a paid subscription, you'll also be helping to support the production of this podcasts and other sports history network shows. That's sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. Newspapers.com. Way better for searches than you know what I'm talking about.
3: Hey, welcome, Paul. Thank you very much for joining us today.
13: Thanks for having me, Greg. And Scott. nice to be here.
4: Guys, just uh, I talked to Greg earlier. Uh, you know, I read the book and of course, Greg and I both collect all kinds of sports books. We have whole libraries. And One thing I'll say about your book. I mean, I, you know, most of the books I've read, I've enjoyed, but a lot of them, I just kind of put them away and don't worry about them again. Your book is a book that I'm going to go back and read over and over again. I mean, it was this. It's one of the most fun reads I've ever had. I mean, just so well done. And I'm not just saying that because you're here, but it probably means more since you are here to say it in front of you.
13: (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Scott. I much appreciate it. I mean, I'm uh, it's thrilling to hear that it resonates with readers and particularly with somebody like you who has written at least one book as well, which, which I very much enjoyed, by the way. So thank you very much.
4: Yeah, it was yeah. just it was fantastic. And there were just, I mean, everything, obviously if you're a football fan, a CFL fan, you're gonna love it. But there's just so much there with the entertainment angle and everything. I mean, there's there's entry points for all sorts of different kinds of people.
13: Yeah, well, you can tell why I wanted to write it, right? Because of all, because of that, because of the fact that they just—it's such a massive, broad, sweeping story with so many angles that go beyond football, and the football angles are amazing too, right? So it, there was so much there. It was a—it was definitely worth doing, and uh, it was worth every effort I put into it.
3: Yeah, and I mean, you crossed. I mean, talking about that, I mean, you cross. I mean, literally, you're crossing the continents. You're crossing sports, and, and you know, the great part about this, obviously to me is as I was reading it um going to the the John Candy parts of, of it too and um how has the reception been how has the reception been of the book in Canada are you getting a lot of when it came out um, how are sales? I guess in a way. How are sales going? Things going? Yeah, bad, apparently
13: hopefully. very. Apparently very well, Greg. I mean, I, I have been told by the publisher that they're into a second printing, so that's obviously very. Oh positive. yeah, that's uh, great. They we we apparently got pretty good traction in the states. I I heard something to suggest that there've been some. Something like a thousand or more copies sold, self of the border, which is fantastic, uh, because obviously it's published by a Canadian outfit, and the, the bulk of the publicity was up here. Um, so yeah, it's great. I mean, I've, I've, had, I've had nothing but positive feedback. Um, a number of a number of outlets have reviewed it, both uh, on both in both Canada and the U.S. Uh, lots of I got lots of uh, uh you know press coverage uh right. in print uh, on radio in podcasts and so on uh so yeah so far so good i mean we're in that last push before christmas and uh hoping people that are going into stores looking for a sports book for their dad or their uncle or their brother will find it right it's uh yeah. that's what that's that's what uh the big the big bookstore up here chapters indigo uh told the publisher back in the spring when when it was still kind of you know being the, you know we were they were in the process of sort of finalizing the design and everything that they thought it was a great a great christmas book for dad so i, yeah. I could i could live with that if okay dads get it for christmas that's fine with me right
3: well i'll keep pushing the uh john candy memes out with your book uh Absolutely. with your I love with your those. book <laughs>
13: Yeah, the one with the one with with John holding the book. That was a, it's an absolute classic. I I had to save that photo. That's just a beautiful picture, man.
3: Well, you know how I am with the memes, and I was just sitting there one day, and I'm like, wait a minute,
13: why? Oh, this
3: is too perfect. And uh, so that's that was kind of the genesis of it. I think I was doing memes and respond to something else, and it dawned on me why am I not putting Paul's book front and center on that so that's that that was the whole genesis of that well
13: you, you did a great job like you got the you got the fingers holding the hand, the book and everything it's fantastic <laughs> <laughs> and uh
3: and with um with the reception so with toronto back in 91 and drd well let's do you see any parallels from where things were in 91 to net to now? And I know without getting too much of what might happen in the future, but to me, when I read the book, it was almost like, I, you know, I kept referring back to where we're at, to where we're at now. And I do see some parallels in, in terms of, you know, the CFL was not in the greatest shape back in the early nineties. And, um, what lessons were learned during that period of time, do you think, that are applicable to kind of where we're at today?
13: Well, that's a great question. Certainly, there were some parallels. I mean, you're, you're right. And I get into this to some extent in the book about the fact that the league was in, in pretty dire straits in a number of its markets at the time. Um, and, and and interest had been declining in Toronto for most of the previous decade. I mean, the interest kind of peaked. Uh, in terms of, you know, in terms of attendance, it, it peaked in, I believe, 78 uh in Toronto, but interest was still high into the early 80s. I mean, they the 83 Eastern final between the Argos and Tiger Cats, or you know, the same that played this past weekend, uh, it had 50 50- 4,000 people at Sky, at, at, not Sky Dome, at Exhibition Stadium. So the building was full and the place was rocking and interest was really high then. The Argos won the Great Cup the week after. And, and, and you know, but from, but from that point on, oddly enough, you know, the interest sort of gradually declined from 84 on. Uh, and by 1990, you know, they were in this... Giant, giant new uh, stadium, Sky Dome, and they were not coming close to selling it out. They were, you know, averaging. I mean, the official average. I, I have to go back and look at the numbers in the book, but I think the official average in 1990 was 32,000. But nobody believed that. It was more like 20 or 22 actual bodies in the seats. Uh, which by today's standards, would be really great, but at that right. time it was seen as a big disaster in a in a 54,000 seat stadium. Um, I mean, they, the, the one thing that I guess is probably different from, from then to now uh, is that even though interests have been declining in the Argos over that decade, nobody seemed to think the Argos were the biggest problem in the CFL. And right now, I think you can find a lot of people that would say the Argo franchise is the biggest problem in the CFL. Um, you know, back then there was, there was you know, a bankrupt team in Ottawa and Hamilton was drawing 11,000 fans with an owner that desperately wanted to get rid of them. Um, BC Lions were were, uh, were had been through a succession of owners that were struggling to find one. Uh, we just got a few years removed from Calgary Stampeders, almost going out of business. Uh, the Montreal Alouettes had gone out of business, so there was a whole pile of problems and the Argos, even though they were their, their attendance had dwindled bit by bit over the course of the 1980s, were still one of the bigger draws in the league and were not perceived as sort of on the verge of folding or anything else, whereas now, I you know, I'm worried about their, their long-term future. Uh, in terms of the, the, the part of the question about, you know, what lessons can be drawn, it's, it's a really interesting question. Um, you know, it's it certainly was evident in 1991 that big names helped sell Canadian football in Toronto and around the CFL. I mean, bringing in, you know, John Candy and Wayne Gretzky and Bruce McNall and them signing Rocket Ismail sparked a massive amount of interest compared to what had been going on for the previous decade or so Uh so since last time big names had been brought up to the league, which was 81, with with Vince Fair coming up from the Rams and, and some other big name NFL players, Billy White, Shoes Johnson, and so on. That was the, really the last time there'd been big names brought into the league. So it was a decade earlier. And uh, when they when they when those names, of course, some of them weren't on the field, and Candy and McNall and Gretzky, they were owners. They were they were in the owner's box around the sidelines. They weren't playing, but they brought a lot of attention to the league uh, in Toronto and around around the CFL. Some people believe that if the Argos were to do that again, if they were to go out and get a really big name player, it might help sell football in Toronto. Um, I don't know if I buy it. Frankly, I don't think I do. I mean, it might it might have a short-term uh, uh, up, uptick like it did in 91. The Argos attendance did go up significantly in 91, but not to a f- sold-out Skydome. And then it started going back again the next year. And there were a lot of reasons for that. Some of them were that they overpriced tickets and that the market was, was really, you know, it wasn't... It as strong as, as the ownership group thought it was after that first year they needed to build it for several more years and they didn't have the money to do that some of it was this weird habit that torontonians have of of losing interest in the argos right after they win the championship that seems to happen every time um it's like people go okay we, we can move on to something else now we've moved- We've done that. Um, so in terms of a lesson, you know, I mean, I, I don't think, I don't think, I mean, we, we're not in a position right now to test it because the, the, the pricing of the two leagues has gone completely askew. You know, the, the Argos outbid the NFL for Rocket Ismail. They paid him more than any player had ever been paid to play gridiron football on a, either side of the border. He was making more than Joe Montana and Jerry Rice and every other star in the NFL and more than anybody had ever been paid. Uh, To do that now, I mean, the Argos would have to sign, they would have had to have signed Trevor Lawrence to a contract for $60 million, right? Because because I think... I think Pat Mahomes makes about 50. So to outbid the NFL now and pay more than anybody in history, you'd have to go that high. And, of course, that's not even remotely feasible. The CFL's whole salary cap for a team is $5.5 So they're clearly not able to replicate that. There was an attempt at it a couple of years ago. Hamilton brought in Johnny Manziel, and then he ended up in Montreal for a bit and there was some belief that that would spark it because there were people certainly there were fans online saying the Argo should go get Manziel and it'll put seats in in BMO field I didn't buy it I still don't buy it I'm not sure there's a I'm not sure there's an NFL star short of Pat Mahomes or or Trevor Lawrence or somebody of that ilk who you could say confidently would put people into the building and so we're not going to see yeah. that um, and I, I think the lesson that I, I would would say didn't necessarily arise out of 1991, but that but that I think in the context of 91 makes sense now is that there's it, the league the Argos are in, in a struggle here in this market. The market's gotten more complicated. Back then there were only three teams: the Blue Jays, the Leafs, and the Argos. Now there's five. Uh, there's way more entertainment options here. The market is just way harder to crack than it was in 91, and it was hard to crack in 91. I mean, those guys brought in. A, a rocket they did a lot and they still couldn't sell the building out and then next year tennis went down I mean, it's this is a really tough market for Canadian football it was tough then and it's tougher now
3: and back then I mean when in 91 you had one person who was really was a one-man marketing crew and tell us about that and just in terms of his impact back then on on selling the Argos? Because, I mean, that was one of my favorite parts of this book, was reading about John Candy and his commitment. Because to me, he came across, I could identify, I think all of us can identify with John Candy and the passion that all of us have for not only our favorite team, but also our
13: favorite league. Yeah, well, it's true. Candy is basically the star of the story. I mean, he's the hero. He was, he passionately loved the Argonauts. And he worked his ass off in 1991 to promote the league and the team, and he was loved across the country. Everywhere he went, people went berserk. Um, and that's also, you know, one of the one of the things that when you think about now, is is there even an equivalent of a John Candy? in existence. I don't think there is. I mean, there's there's nobody that's universally loved the, the way that John is, I don't think, right? And so there's no way you could find an equivalent now of somebody like that that could come in and just instantly energize the entire country. I mean, it wasn't just Toronto. It was the whole country was just crazy about the fact that here's Uncle Buck. He's at our stadium and he's not only at our stadium, but he's he's here the day before the game at five in the morning. He's on radio and Regina got every station in town saying, buy tickets to tomorrow night's game. We need you to see you out here. This is a great product. It's a great league. We're gonna a good game um so yeah he he was he really was the marketing machine and you know he ended up having to do more of it maybe than he expected because the guy that they thought would be able to do that which was rocket ismail was not well suited for that particular task as as they found out pretty early on and so i mean i'm guessing john probably done it anyway. I think he, that for first year, I think his, he had every intention from the moment he got on board with, with the ownership group, he had every intention of, I'm going to take this thing as far as I can take it. I am all in. So he would have been regardless. But I think he was as stunned as everybody else, as stunned as, as McNall and Gretzky were to discover that Rocket was not comfortable talking to reporters and was not was not comfortable being in the spotlight. Um, and so it was good that John was there to sort of step into the, to the breach um but you know you're marketing a guy who actually is wearing a suit on the sidelines he's not the he's not the kind of person that a kid's going to put up on put a poster of of an owner on a sideline right they want a poster of the guy holding the football in his hand and racing down the field um so it you know but you're right john, john is uh john's such an important part of the story and my favorite parts of the book are the john candy sections and there's a you know there's a whole chapter about john but he's he factors into several chapters because he was so important to the story and, and you know sadly he ended up dying you know right after the the whole thing ended basically so well
4: and the thing about him too which which i love so much in the book is you see whether it's whether it's an entertainer or a sports figure, you hope they're a certain way and you don't want to find out anything bad about him. Well, you don't find out anything bad about John Cat. I mean, he really was just the good dude that you saw on screen.
13: Yeah, you know, it's almost everybody I interviewed. I I spoke to more than 100 people uh, for this book and almost all of them had one-on-one time with John at some point during that year or during those three years. Uh, And nobody had a bad word to say about the man. I mean, a few people did say that he party right he he could drink he had a he he could he, he closed the bar uh, he drank a lot and he smoked a lot there's no no secret of that um but nobody ever saw a bad side of john candy i had one player tell me uh, one anecdote about how there was one time he was out in public at some function and some fan was really getting on his was really was really pestering him and John like threw a look at one of his aides like get me out of here and that's the worst thing you heard about John is that he he just wanted to be taken away from from a from, a, from an annoying fan and most of the time he embraced the fans he bought them drinks he you know, the night before the game in Regina, after he'd been up at five in the morning doing radio, and then he probably played golf in the afternoon. And and then, you know, he's goes to the bar at the in the in the hotel that night and he closes the place with a bunch of Saskatchewan fans, right? So it's, it's he was he really was what we thought he would what we would like John Candy to be having watched all those movies scott that's exactly what he <laughs> exactly. Was, right? And, yes and, and I, I am glad I, I really felt i had a kind of a solemn mission here to kind of do to make sure that john was portrayed that way because it like i say if you talk to 100 people and you hear that you know it's true uh and you know the only book that's been written about john that i'm aware of is pretty nasty uh, Really, and I wanted to make sure. Oh, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's about you know it's more about his addictions and his and you know the way he's, he's he ran his business and stuff. It's just it's not a it doesn't paint a it doesn't paint a glowing picture of of John. And I just think that's wrong. I mean, he's he's John's one of the greatest Canadians of all time. He's one of the most lovable humans on the face on the history of Earth, right? And he doesn't deserve to be ripped to shreds. And and I wanted to make sure that he was elevated by this story.
3: And you you definitely did. And to me, he came across as the great unifier of the league.
13: Oh, absolutely. I mean, he 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 was.
3: To me, I mean, like, he was almost de facto commissioner for a year.
13: Well, yeah, he became the chairman of the – committee and, and uh they uh, you know they they ended up expanding for three years into the US and, and that was driven by the McNall group. But John John found the new owners of the Ottawa Rough Riders, the Liebermans out of Detroit. And John was a driving force in some of the other owners that came up here. He was uh, he he really was, and you know, there's an interesting story a book about the Gleberman's how how uh, you know they were they were looking at buying the Hamilton Tiger Cats and and when John found out about it he was furious because the league at that point owned the Rough Riders because they'd gone bankrupt and and so he says why are you not uh, why are you guys not looking at buying Ottawa and Lonnie Gleberman says well we were directed towards the Tiger Cats by the commissioner and the commissioner got pushed out of that thing pretty quick. The Argos brokered that sale. And next thing you know, the Gleberman's bought the Ottawa Rough Riders, which needed to happen. they are not a well-loved family up here. You know, they did some crazy things over the years with owning the Rough Riders. They later owned the Shreveport Pirates. And, and, you know, Lonnie is kind of a character, right? But the fact is they brought some money into a team that was that was bankrupt and it needed to have a savior. And John Candy brokered that deal. So you're right. He kind of was the de facto commissioner in a in a way for that first year.
3: Yeah, and with Bruce McNall, Now I know you talked a lot. It, it, you you talked a lot with him to for this book. Um, for those who don't know, I mean, when you talk about how he kind of started, he started. If I understood it correctly, he started out as basically a coin collector, and that's where the um, that's where the empire started, that eventually yeah. fell.
13: <laughs> yeah that's right I mean Kramer, he, he 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 the story goes that he he was he was in a coin shop as a teenager and saw a coin that was like, I don't know, 2000 years old or something. And it was like, it cost a couple of dollars. And he couldn't believe that you could own something 2000 years old and pay only $2 for it or whatever the amount was. It was some insignificant amount of money for this old ancient coin. And that led him to start looking into, you know, antiquities and ancient coins in particular. And of course he ended up doing some pretty, some pretty uh, uh, sideways things like smuggling coins out of Europe in his in his pants, pockets on on planes and things, uh, but he par- parlayed it all into a fortune eventually, you know, at least well it was a fortune, but a big part of that fortune was was achieved by uh, by duping investors, gullible investors who who just thought Bruce really was a you know uh, a, a zillionaire with a Midas touch and, and uh, everything he touches turns to gold. Well it, you know it turns out everything he touches was was money that somebody else had paid him. On false pretenses, basically, uh, but yeah, he's an interesting part of the story. And of course, Bruce admitted to me that you know, when he when he came in to, to buy the Argonauts, that he had an ulterior motive. He wanted an NFL franchise in Toronto. Uh, he thought he'd get the rights in skydome and do that. So he made some efforts to do that. Um, you know, there was a lot of Bruce is a very interesting part of the story too. He he's uh, he's a lovable con man. He is a con man, but he's a very lovable guy, right? And Gretzky still still likes Bruce. Uh, players, Carl Brasley, still likes Bruce. I mean, these guys, uh, you know, nobody really had much bad to say about Bruce, despite the fact that he he basically ripped off, you know, banks and investors to the tune of a quarter of a billion dollars. I, Brian Cooper, who was the chief operating officer of the team, did did is mad at Bruce because he got fired and didn't get paid out. And uh, he tells a pretty funny story about, you know, seeing Bruce years later at a Super Bowl party at Wayne Gretzky's place and and Bruce just was I Bruce, affable, gregarious. Hey, how you doing, Brian? Never, never sorry I didn't pay you. Nothing like that, right? So <laughs> but but other everybody else pretty much says Bruce is Bruce and Bruce would be in Bruce back then. And we all just loved the guy because he was he's got a big goofy grin. He looks like Fred Flintstone. Everything he did seemed to be successful. We found out partway through the ownership of the Argos that it wasn't, everything wasn't successful. It was all a house of cards that, that he built on, you know, one set of loans on another set of loans on another set of loans. And the wall started closing in about the second year of his ownership of the Argos. And by the third year, he was desperate to sell the team because he needed the cash flow.
3: Right. And, and the Kings were, I mean, he had the Kings going in, in LA too. And that was, it, it sounded to me. And if I, it sounded to me just from reading your book that the king he was using the kings to keep the Argos
13: afloat. Well, yeah, a you know it's it's funny because the there were people there there were some people in Toronto that thought that thought money was being funneled from the Argonauts down to LA right um which which doesn't really make much sense because the Argos weren't selling as many tickets as they needed to there wasn't that kind of money flowing in
8: well, but that
13: just shows you how weird and and wacky the whole thing was the money was flowing in various directions and it was it was trying to constantly stay ahead of his creditors, basically. Uh, The great anecdote in in there about how, you know, Danny Webb, the Argos equipment manager, got a call in 93 from the the equipment manager of the Kings saying, are you having any problems up there? Because they'd had a bunch of sticks repossessed. Like a stick order had been, had not repossessed, but an order of hockey sticks had been, had not been shipped because the, the manufacturer was worried they weren't gonna get paid. Then that was the first time Danny thought, oh, there's something going on here. But there were people in the business offices of the Argos that were thinking, like, why are we sending checks down to LA? What I found out in the book is that it was more, Brian Cooper was on the phone to LA saying, we need money. We don't, you gotta, you gotta float us more. We can't, we can't run this thing. And they weren't paying their bills, right? There were, there were, there were suppliers in Toronto being stiffed by the Argos, which damaged the brand. And maybe in some ways damaged the brand immeasurably, at least among those individuals or businesses, they probably never did business with them again. Right. Right. Right.
4: You know, the, obviously I'm a Matt Dunnigan fan because of the 95 Barracudas, you know, the, the one in <laughs> one and done season there. But you know, i'm I'm reading about him in your book, which is interesting. but then it leads me down the rabbit hole, which I'll call the ballad of uh, of Ricky Foggy. I mean, that was such, you know, that was such a great story about him. And I was completely unaware of, of how all that played out, but everything from you know, not getting the start because of you know, all the the shooting up of Matts shoulder or whatever, to when. Mark Rippon is being paraded as the new quarterback while he is the quarterback. I mean, it's, that right. it was kind of a, just a sad time, you know, you look back on it because the, the dude did everything he was asked to do.
13: I sure did. I mean, you know, Ricky, they would not have, they would not have got to the gray cup in 91, probably if it were not for Ricky Foggy because Dunnigan was hurt a lot. He kept getting injured and going on the shelf for games, game after game. Uh, they brought in Foggy in, in midway through the 1990s season because matt and other quarterbacks were hurt and he instantly started tearing it up i mean he lit the place up there's a game in 1990 where he threw seven touchdown passes and ran for 100 yards i mean that, that's never been done in pro football anywhere as far as i can tell um and uh you know he, he they won the Argos were 13 and five in in uh, in 1991 uh in the regular season and i think foggy was the starter for like i think for 10 of the 13 wins uh, something like that. And so, yeah, you know, and then uh, he he had to sit on the bench. He had to take a back seat. He'd never never got on the field in the 91 Grey Cup, despite the fact that he played the vast majority of the snaps that year. Um, and he expected to play the Grey Cup because dunigan uh, fractured his clavicle the week before in the Eastern final in two places and didn't pick up didn't pick up football all week. He couldn't throw the ball, he couldn't lift his arm and didn't practice. You know, he's in a sling all week long. And Foggy gets told the night before by Adam Rita, if, if the doctors say Matt can play, he's playing. And Ricky had to basically swallow his pride and accept it. And he, to his credit, he I mean, he was a, a, an absolute team guy. He said, to, he said to Rita, would you do it if, if, if this role was reversed? And he said, absolutely. He said, okay, coach, then I'm with you. And, uh, and then, you know, there's a great story in the book where uh, the, in those days, quarterbacks called their own plays. And uh, didn't wasn't calling one play that Rita wanted to call that involved him doing a fake handoff, a, like a, a play-action pass where he had to sort of turn his back to the defense for, a, for a, a split second to sort of draw them into the running back. And he didn't want to do it because he was really hurt. And even though they'd shot up his, his, his shoulder, he was in a lot of pain and he couldn't lift his arm. And, and Rita said, you either call this player or I'm putting in foggy uh and and then he actually said then he he said to foggy foggy warm up and foggy says you're not going to do that while you go she says yeah i damn well am i if he's if he's if he's good enough to play he's good enough to to do the the play that i called." uh and and you know what done loves foggy foggy loves Donnegan. they both love rita um but you're right and the ripper thing is you know then then matt leaves in free agency after the season which was arguably one of the stupid mistakes that the organization made to let him go because he was the hero of the Grey Cup. And he was a marquee name. He was the biggest named quarterback in the league at that time. Flutie was about to overtake him and he really did in 92, but but Dunnegan was a name figure and a, and a charismatic guy that could be sold, right? Good looking, big arm, all that stuff. Uh, Gunslinger, uh, and they let him walk because he kept getting hurt, and they didn't want to pay him to sit on the injury list. Uh, and they're going, "Oh, well, we'll give give the job to Ricky. We look how great he did the last two years." Well, but as as Matt says, and even Ricky would probably basically admit this, better suited as a backup, a better suited as a backup that you used a lot. They gave him the number one job, and, and you know, coming out of camp, all of a sudden Mark Rippon's there, the quarterback of the Super Bowl champion Washington football team. And he's on the sidelines in Skydome being touted as the next big name. We're going to sign while foggy's leading his team to 62 points against the lions. Like what a, what a slap in the face that was. And then they just went down here from them, from there in that 92 season. But yeah, foggy's a foggy's a great part of the story. And, he deserves recognition. I'm glad I was able to write a lot about Ricky because he, he might be forgotten, right? He was sort of, people would think of Ricky Foggy as a backup quarterback because that's kind of what he was. And he played about nine or 10 years in the CFL altogether. All he even came back years. He was in Arena League for many years and he came back to the CFL briefly, I think. Uh, but yeah, backup quarterback, guy with a huge smile on his face, but a humongously important part of the 1991 Argonauts, which was the greatest Argonauts team of all time. Uh, Ricky Ricky's right up there with Dunnigan and, and Pinball and some of the other in terms of importance to that team. So I'm glad I was able to sort of capture that in the book as well.
3: Yeah. And, uh, you know, to me, Foggy comes across is very much in that. Um, I want to say um, Don Strachmold, guy you, you can go, you can point to, get it done. And that's, and when I read your book, I kept, reflecting back to my, you know, back during the day, guys like Don Strock, and we've talked to Matt before. So uh, Scott and I are, you know, huge, even more huge fans after spending time with Matt talking about his career. Yeah. Um, when it came to pinball, pinball, I mean, you talk about pinball, pinball, I mean, there's so many characters, you don't get to s- spend a whole lot of time with each one. Obviously, Rockets a big, mm-hmm. huge part mm-hmm. of the story. But in terms of pinball's impact on that team, not only for that season but he's had his ever you know since since he got there has had a huge impact on the team through the course of God the last what 30 years now
13: 30 32 years he came yeah. up in 80 80- and uh, you know he was he was in his uh pinball's greatest season arguably was the 1990 season his second year in the league his first year as a as a full-time player uh he set the record at the time for the most all-purpose yards in a league with 33 in, in a season with 3,300 uh it was just he was an unstoppable weapon and he, and he won the most outstanding player award that year uh and then, of course, he's been—he's become the greatest Argonaut of all time since then, right? He went on to play a 12-year career. Uh, he twice broke the record for all-purpose yards that he'd set earlier because he—they converted him to, to a slot back in the '96-'97 seasons when Flutie was there, and he. Beat- an unbelievable weapon as a rec- pass receiver as well as a kick returner uh and then of course he they in, in midway through the 2000 season when he was in his 12th season as a player they made him head coach and he you know he was actually a player coach for about a month before he finally hung up the the cleats and and, and took over the coaching reins and he won a great cup as a coach In 2004, becoming, I believe, the first black head coach to win a great cup in the Canadian Football League. Uh, Now he's the general manager of the team. He's been the face of the franchise, basically, for 30 plus years. Uh, It's funny, you know, in 1991, he was hurt a a fair bit and, and he ended up not being as gigantic a factor on the field as he certainly not as he had been in 1990 when he was the focal point of the offense. Um, but he was a big important part of the, of the, the team because he became the mentor on the field mentor to rocket. Uh, and uh, you know, rocket specifically says, you know, it was, it was, his roommate, Carl Brasley and his locker mate pinball Clemens that really helped him grow up to become the man that he is now uh pinball unfortunately he was he was hurt and bad during that gray cup he suffered a, a turf toe injury the week before in the eastern final the same one where dunnigan uh got his clavicle broken uh pinball on a, a great touchdown run hurt his suffered turf toe which doesn't sound like a bad injury but it's an incredible oh it's insane. bad oh it's very so bad debilitating injury and in fact he said it you know, he was all hurt all through the 92 season with that injury yeah um so in the 91 gray cup pinball had to become the most uh elaborate decoy imaginable they 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 calgary had to respect him because of who he was and what he could do and they took their best defensive back uh, Daryl and he shadowed pinball the whole game and pinball ran decoy ropes roots the whole game including on that play action pass where dunningham threw the long touchdown pass to daryl k smith it was set up by pinball faking a run into the line and uh, he only touched the ball i think three or four times in the 91 gray cup it was not the factor that you'd think of uh and he certainly was a much bigger factor in the 96 and 97 gray cups uh but very important as a, as a presence in the in the, the market. very important as a presence in the room and very important as a mentor to Rocket Ismail.
3: Yeah, and uh, when it comes to rocket, and I know you weren't able, he didn't want to be interviewed for the book. And obviously the title is all is the Year of the Rocket. So let's talk about him coming to Canada. And you know he was only, what, he was only twenty. If I if I remember the age, yeah,
13: he turned. He was twenty one, I believe. I think he turned, turned twenty two just before the Grey Cup in ninety one. So he okay. was twenty one. Yeah.
3: So you got a young kid coming up north after you know standout career at Notre Dame, and all these expectations are put on him as the not only savior of the franchise but savior of the league. Did he kind of know that's what was going to be expected of him? at the outset or, I mean, yeah, I mean, it just seems to me, I mean, it just seems to me he didn't have enough people down here, I guess, saying, Hey, this is what's going to be expected of you. Maybe I'm wrong in, in that.
13: Yeah. That's, that's a great question, Greg, you know, because I mean, I, 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 there's no doubt in my mind, but based on all the research I did, all the interviews I, I, I did and, and everything I read and, watched about this, that the organization itself did not do its full due diligence on whether Rocket had the right mentality to be what they wanted him to be. They wanted to be the Wayne Gretzky of Canadian football, the biggest star, the biggest attraction, the, the front person, the spokesperson, the savior of the league, as you described it. Uh, and it was not his, his personality was not suited for that. And they did not find that out. The organization did not find that out until he was already in on the team he was in camp he was you know it was, in fact it was even during training camp that they were starting to see oh holy crap he's not he's not big in all this interaction with the press um you know was he, he may not have been properly served by by his uh his Team Rocket, as they were called, because he had a whole raft of agents and advisors and so on. Um, but at the same time, I mean, they're offered to pay you more than, way more than he would have been paid if he had been the number one draft pick in the NFL, which he was touted right. as being. You know, they, they ended up being Russell Maryland who got picked by the Cowboys. And I think I think Russell Maryland got paid eight million million over five years. Well, Rocket got paid $9 million over two years. And it would have been 18 over four had he stayed for the last two years of the career of the contract. So how can you turn that down? Um, and you know, the, the fact is rocket was rocket. I think he is, and he was a really lovable uh, gregarious guy in many ways. Um, you know, he's got a great smile and he's, and he's uh, he's uh, he's just, he's a fun person to be around, but he didn't want to do it publicly. He, he was happy to do it in the locker room and with his friends, but he wasn't happy to do it in front of the cameras. Um, and for better or worse, they uh, they didn't find that until it was, they were in, like they're locked into him. He did, to his credit, he, he performed on the field, particularly in 91. He lived up to his to his money. Um, but, his, but the thing is, his money wasn't being paid for on the field, right? He, yeah, they needed him to help to win the Grey Cup. But... He made his, his CFL playing contract was $110,000 his, his sponsorship and promotion contract was four and a half million. Uh, so they needed that. That was, that was the reason he was up here. It wasn't because he was going to give them at the Argos, another weapon. Sure. That was nice. Uh, and that last weapon became a hugely important weapon for the team as they got into the as deeper into that season. Uh, but yeah, you know, he, 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 I don't think he knew what he was in for. Um, I think he probably thought I'll just, it'll just be like Notre Dame. I'll, you know, I'll be, I'll be sheltered. I'll be shielded. I'll play on the, I'll play on the field. I'll become good friends with my teammates. I'll be a good team man. Um, I'll defer to the stars like Dunnigan and pinball and DK, and everything will be fine. But you know what? Four and a half million dollars, which in those days was gigantic money you gotta do more than than defer to those guys and, and tell j- journalists to go talk to pinball. You gotta you gotta be out front all the time. Uh, and so that was a problem. And it, you know, it's 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 one of the reasons it, the year of the rocket, I mean it was it, the whole rocket, everything revolved around the rocket to some extent that year. Um on the field and off the field. And the off the field stuff is the is the part that's just kind of astonishing in some ways. You know, the fact yeah. that it was the fact that it happened the way it did. Um, it's, you almost wouldn't believe it. There's a quote, I think on the book from Stephen Brunt, like if this was a Hollywood script, wouldn't believe it. And it's kind of true. Like, you know, it just seems just incredible to think that this all could have happened, that they could have given that much money to that kid. And nobody thought to like, let's give him some psychological tests or let's, let's, let's test him out and see what he's, how he is handling the press. You know, it just, it, it didn't dawn on them until too late.
3: And it and it struck me just in reading, just talking about when he was off the field, there was a bit of loneliness on his part, and uh, that that's kind of what came out. It's like, I mean, and obviously Rocket Ishmael has always been a good player. I mean, you know, there's nothing, there's no, I guess, for lack of a better term, there's never any been never been any scandal associated with him. Yeah, yeah. Good kid, but just lonely in and in a different place. So, yeah,
13: absolutely. I mean, he he was. He was 21, as you said, and, and yeah. that was a team of 30-plus, 30 30-something 30 guys, right, with with wives and kids, and some of them had other jobs even during the season. Um, and he was really kind of on his own. He, he was plunked down into a, an expensive condominium in downtown Toronto uh, back before Toronto became overrun with expensive condominiums. Uh, and he was not uh, – you know, he didn't really have anybody to hang out with. I mean, you know, the guys – after practice, the guys would – they would go home to their kids uh you know some guy has partied but he wasn't the partier so he wasn't inclined to like go didn't want to go to bars because he was afraid he was going to be mobbed because he be, probably would have been he was a big face around the town so we basically went between skydome and three blocks away into his condo and didn't do much else and he had you know sit there and watch tv or play video games in his condo um there's this unbelievable scene in the book where they. where or the, the the camera crew that was following the Argos around for a documentary that year went up to his to his condo to uh, to film him uh, watching a Notre Dame game, and it's it's bleak like it's just him and him and this young guy who might have been a 12 or 15 year old kid that he'd befriended because he didn't really know anybody his own age and he's just watching this this game on tv and then it, it, as, as the the filmmaker told me you know after the after the uh after the uh the filming was done rocket kind of wanted the two that were up there to sort of hang out with him and they're like well that's kind of weird like he wants us to hang he wants <laughs> us to stay right and he was lonely he absolutely was his mom his mom was in wilkes barre pennsylvania his brother his, his the second brother was at syracuse university the third brother i think was still in high school at in wilkes barre so he had no relatives uh he made you know carl Brazy was a great uh, mentor for road games but you know carl had a family and carl lived you know lived at a home somewhere in, in the toronto area he didn't he wasn't going to hang out with rocket every day pinball you know pinball had other stuff to do it's You you know, there was only one other guy on that team that was 21 years old, JP Esquerda, who was a Canadian running back slash slot back out of the University of Calgary. The two had virtually nothing in common other than their age. I mean, JP Esquerda was making $30,000, Rocket was making four and a half million. and J.P. you know came out of a hard scrabble environment in Western Canada. Rocket came out of Notre Dame, uh, small town before that in wilkesbury But uh, so yeah, he, he was he was a lonely guy. I mean I I hoped that in the book it would capture. You're right, Greg. He didn't he didn't speak to me about you know wouldn't be interviewed and that's too bad because I would have liked to have heard his his view on everything. Now that 30 years have passed, but. I wanted to make sure that it was a well-rounded picture to show that it wasn't just, this wasn't a bad dude. This was a this was a guy who had an unbelievable amount of pressure thrust upon him. Uh, and many people would not have responded properly. There aren't that many Wayne Gretzky's. As, as Gretzky's dad said to Bruce McNall, there's only one Wayne Gretzky. Uh, you know, Gretzky was used to dealing with the pressure he was 11 years old and by the time he bought the team along with and candy he was in his 30s and he he could handle that stuff no problem rock had been a a, a small small town in pennsylvania then he went to notre dame where he was really well insulated and protected he did have to talk to the press from time to time as i as i learned and it comes out in the book but he really had, he had, didn't have a whole lot of hassles at Notre Dame, not the kind you right. have when you're in, now you're the savior of an entire football league, right?
3: Yeah, there's a huge difference between the South Bend media and the media of an entire country.
13: Yeah, absolutely. And, and Notre Dame is, is this massively successful institution that was successful before Rocket got there. Was going to be successful after he left. It wasn't the you know what I got to go and I got to go and sell tickets in a city where they're where they've gone bankrupt. You know, like I mean, I don't know how much of that specific stuff he, he even understood or took on himself, but but I know that the they, the organization felt they had to kind of give him remedial media training from Candy and Gretzky pretty early on in the ninety one season. He basically, guys, like it's not that I don't want to do it. I just don't know how. I've never done it, which, as it turned out, was not quite true. But he definitely, it was true that he didn't like doing it and, and was really not interested in doing it. And I, and maybe that's one of the reasons he didn't want to talk to me because he just didn't want to talk about that. Who knows?
4: Well, and you, you know, I, I just think back when I'm 21 years old, and obviously I was already in the spotlight like him. But these are still babies, you know. Unfortunately, fans look at sports figures. Not as humans, but as, you know, they're just, they're performing a function, but they're human beings. And yeah, that's, I thought you really captured that so well. I mean, this, at his core, he's just a kid and he's a kid who's away from home. He's got every spotlight in Canada, you know, shining on him. I mean, that's a tough spot to be in regardless of how much money you make.
13: Yeah, oh yeah, and, and and the money just makes the pressure that much worse, right? Like, right. is it is it worth it? Is it worth the four and a half? You didn't know how to spend the money anyway, and, and now i you know, and I'm because I'm making all this money, they expect all this from me, and I'd rather just a good teammate, a good guy in the locker room, and give me the ball, put the ball in my hands, and uh, so yeah, you, you absolutely have to feel for him. It, it just it was it was a, basically they put him in a completely untenable situation off the field um luckily they had a great veteran group of players that 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 were quite happy to absorb into their into their ranks on the field and of course he he became an absolute weapon you know he started off that year as i say i think he only caught four four passes in the first four games of the season but by the end of the year he was the best receiver in the league in my opinion he was he was an unbelievable weapon coming down the stretch every week he made at least one gigantic play an 80 yard touchdown here yard touchdown there he was just lighting it up as he got down the stretch he he basically blew open the eastern final by a punt return touchdown midway through the first quarter and then of course he scored the iconic touchdown in the gray cup uh that basically salted the victory away for the argos and led to the you know the beer can coming out of the stands and all that stuff so yeah he he was he he absolutely lived up to his billing as a player that year Uh, not so much the second year but the whole the whole Thing went south the second year. Um, but yeah, you couldn't. I don't know anybody that could have done. I mean, you know, people have said, and it would have been interesting if they put that kind of money on pinball Clemens and made him the focal point. You know, he, he could have handled it probably. Um, but they didn't. I mean, they for better or worse, they they they, they had they had if you could have good t- taken rocket rockets ability and pinball's personality, you would have had the greatest player in the history of sports, right? Uh, the greatest selling, the greatest marketing. And, and and athletic thing in the history of as it was pinball was a fantastic player and i'm not to take anything away from his athletic right. ability because yeah. he was amazing um but you know if if, if they'd somehow after the 1990 season if McNall and gretzky and candy had come up bought the team and said and you know we you know what we see we've now we've got this unbelievable superstar here in pinball clemens and we're going to make him the highest paid football I think people would have been pretty happy to, 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 follow behind pinball. And he would, he, he's got the personality for it. He would not have minded being thrust into the limelight that way. Um, so there and you plus go. Too, he's
3: got the skills to back it up too. And Absolutely. That's, that's right. He yeah. was,
13: yeah, he, he's, he's a, he's a hall of fame player. He's a, he's a, the, literally the best Argonaut player in the history of the, of the of the 150 year old franchise i right. think i mean you know in terms of you know longevity and ability he's got the, he's got the most all purpose yards in the history of canadian football right 25000 all purpose yards in 12th seasons so uh and and plus he's you know he won a great cup as a coach and he's won a great cup as an executive and he's rebuilding franchise now and hopefully they will they will be able to succeed in the marketplace uh yeah he does he, he back, he's got all the abilities to back that up as well as the greatest personality he's the john candy of football players basically right <laughs> the most the most lovable individual you're ever going to meet everybody who meets face pinball clemens face the face comes away absolutely loving the guy you know and he'll, right. you'll you'll meet him and he'll he'll you'll meet him once and then he will see him eight years later and he might remember your name like it's unbelievable <laughs>
3: Well, and then, you know, and just talking about that, I mean, the CFL, we all know, I mean, all three of us, I mean, we, we follow the league, we know who the stars are. The CFL is some great stars. So can you see a return here? And then, and hopefully within the next season or two, where these, all the stars are marketed because there are some compelling storylines when we go into every week, you know, even, even though, for instance, the Elks, I mean, the Elks didn't do that, but there were some compelling storylines there. And personalities do sell the sport. I mean, in, in every sport, obviously, base you know, uh, basketball and hockey being, you know, good examples of that. And uh, you know, the you know, the football, the NFL. I mean, to quote Sonny Werblin's wife back in the '60s, football show business. Do you see a return for the CFL to market those stars? Because you know, I mean, we're, we're at that point now, I guess, you know, without having to dwell too much on the future, but there is, I think there's definitely a need to, to sell, the, sell the stars that, that are out there.
13: Well, there's a need to sell a lot of things, and the stars are certainly one of them. Part of the problem that the league faces is that they uh, uh, they've created this situation where almost every veteran signs a one-year contract. So there's free, massive free agency every year. So you never know who's gonna be on your team from year to year. Uh, you know, you take it, you get a big name player, uh, next year you might be on the, on your rivals. Uh, so that's, that's a problem. Um, I mean, there's, there's also the, 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 the sad reality that because it's not a high paying league, some people, and particularly, I think it's fair to say, in in the Toronto market, look down upon it as as you know as as rinky dink. It's not. It's the NFL is paying paying Pat Mahomes fifty million dollars, and he's on TV every week, and and the games are incredibly well produced and entertaining spectacles. And the Argos are paying you know their top paid players making one hundred and fifty grand or something, and a lot of people are making less than people in the stands are making. So it's hard. Hard to kind of build that into stardom, I think, is the veneer of stardom, right? How do you how do you make it showbiz when guys have to go and get jobs in the off season so that they can afford to play in the CFL? And it's, there's a lot of problems around the league that are beyond the, the, the lack of marketing the stars. I actually, you know, we, we can go here or not. I don't sidetrack the discussion, but I, I'm worried that the league has lost its entertainment value. Uh, The the product itself is not as entertaining as it used to be. uh, And I think that's a huge problem. Uh, The entertainment value of the NFL right now is higher than the CFL. And I would have never believed I would have said that for almost my entire six four years on earth Um, they don't the cfl has has changed rules has changed roster sizes and the net result of all of this has been that we don't get as much action as we used to get we don't get as many plays in each game we don't get as many big plays all the teams are built to stop the offense it's all about the defense it's all about loading up all your all your, your, your big american stars on defense uh and it's it's just it, it's lost what it was you know when i look back at those 90 and i i watched a lot of games from 1990 and 91 because of the book obviously i've got them all and i i watched a lot of them i built highlight packages and did a whole lot of stuff And i mean man you were seeing way more entertaining spectacles back then than you are now and a lot of that is because the the roster sizes have gotten bigger and the clock rules have gotten stupider uh so to me the league's got to get, they got to take drastic steps to make it more entertaining than it, than it is now and ideally make it more entertaining than the NFL is. So you can hopefully win back some younger people that might get swept up if it was, if it was really a jazzed up product. Uh, that's one of the reasons I was in favor of, of, let's talk to the XFL. Let's think about a way to kind of make this, make this thing work on both sides of the border. Uh, because I believe that you could have, you know, you could have some jazzy rules and radical changes to, to, to how clocks, the clock is run and things like that. Uh, I, I was stunned by the, the numbers, uh, the, the number of plays that were the offensive snaps in the two games this past weekend. I think in the in the Toronto-Hamilton game, there were 94 offensive snaps in the entire game. And in the Saskatchewan-Winnipeg game, there were 95 offensive snaps. A few years ago, the New England Patriots ran 91 offensive plays themselves in one game. In 1990, the Argos ran 92 plays in one game. Now both teams combined are running 90 plays in the game. I don't go to games to watch referees standing around waiting with his arm up in the air before he starts the, the, the play clock and then 20 seconds fritter off while, while substitutions happen. It's it's This is a problem. I, I'm, I, I'm a gigantic Canadian football fan. Obviously, I wouldn't have written two books about the Argonauts if I wasn't. I've loved this league since I was 10 years old. Uh, but man, I I don't find the games as entertaining as they used to be and, and not even close to that. And if I start losing interest because they're not that exciting, how are you going to get the casual fans to either come or come back? Right, so right. that's a whole topic for a discussion. We can certainly get into it now or later, yeah, but I, I got, truly, I truly think it's a problem, right? It's a I I hope they, I, I think the league has got to have a complete rethink of it's of everything. Uh, there's other problems here. I mean, one, the problems that the league has is that it's got this weird set of three different styles of ownership. You've got, you've got publicly owned teams in the three, three of the four prairie cities, which, which don't have like a single owner. They've, they're owned by the community. You've got privately owned teams like Bob Young in and Hamilton and, and, and Vancouver and Montreal uh and then you've got conglomerates that own sports teams like you've got mlsc with the argos and the and the group that owns the stampeders that also owns the calgary flames and they don't have a lot in common among those three groups so there's there's no there's no unifying principle here that is how we're going to do things um and that's that's holding the league back in my I mean, what MLSE needs to have happen is maybe completely in conflict with what the Edmonton Elks need to have happen in their market. So how do you resolve that, right? I mean, they both they end up both doing what what they think is best for them, uh, and it doesn't help grow the league as a whole. Um, so there's 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 structural issues there. Uh, again, I think on the on-field product it re- needs a complete rethink i would be open to rat- i'd be open to four downs if necessary i'd be open to a lot of a lot of changes um because i want to be enter- as entertained as i am typically by several nfl games every week not all of them they're they're crappy nfl games no question but there's also good ones every week. And when you've got 32 teams you're going to get some good games every single week
8: yeah. When you've yeah.
13: got, you got nine teams, you might get you might have a week where all the games are terrible, right?
3: And, and as the NFL has shown, the NFL now plays a CFL style of game.
13: They've stolen all the best things about out of Canadian football offensively. Uh, and, and they've taken away the kinds of quarterbacks that used to only come to Canada because the NFL didn't like black guys and didn't like running quarterbacks. So, you know, 20 years ago, Russell Wilson would have been up here and Lamar Jackson would have been up here.
3: Tyler
4: Murray. Uh,
13: yeah, Kyler Murray, Murray is like that's the that's Condred Holloway 2.0, right? Conridge Holloway was coming out of college coming out of Alabama now instead of in 1975. I, mean, I know he went to Tennessee, but he's from Alabama. Yeah, he he absolutely would be in the NFL. I don't care if he's five foot nine. He that, he's Kyler Murray 1.0, right? So <laughs> so we've lost those guys, and and you know so we we're not getting the kinds of the kinds of skill level at the core back in positions that we used to get and meanwhile the teams are just loading up on defense and they're all playing the same boring offensive system they're all doing we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna our running game is gonna be three yard passes so we're gonna just run we're gonna go up and down the field with three yard passes nobody tries to run the ball the traditional way nobody throws them i mean there, a few teams air it out the lions bc lions air it out fair bet. Um, you know, Hamilton tried to air it out against the Argos three weeks ago and it didn't work. The Argos tried to air it out in the, in the playoff game this week and it didn't work. But mostly we see safe, high percentage plays and the defense just says, yeah, you know what? You got to do 12 of those to get into the out, okay we'll take your chances we'll, we'll bend but don't break a sooner or later you're gonna screw it up because you've only got three downs so they play they play to stop that sort of stuff right and and they and they roll in new fresh defensive linemen on every play so the guys are never tired and it's just you know the, that these are problems i i i know it's never happening i'd go i would love to go back to a 37-man roster i know it will never happen i, I would definitely go back to a 40-man roster And I would I would put I would say to the to the coaches, you want to substitute you can substitute, but uh, but that we're not going to have a twenty second clock that starts after the substitutions are done. We're going to have a thirty second clock as soon as the ball as soon as the whistle goes, a thirty second clock starts. And you can either get your subs in there or not, but you got 30 seconds for the next play, that's it. Absolutely. And it would force it would force teams to not substitute as free, freely on defense, It would, which would mean you'd get guys that are a bit more tired and that leads to big plays. Now, the problem is, you know, player safety, everybody's concerned about player safety, and well, they should. Football is an extremely dangerous sport that probably shouldn't even be allowed to exist. You know, if they were reinventing it nowadays, it would never be allowed, right? But, but we love it and, and I don't want anybody to get concussions and to, and to, and to get injured. But I wouldn't mind if if the, my the the peak period of the CFL for entertainment was from about 1980 to about 1997, I think. And guy starters played special teams. Defensive linemen played every snap. Receivers played every snap. Now it's just shuttling guys in and out. You're always looking. at What's the package? I'm I'm in the I'm in the stands of BMO, and every play I'm watching. Okay, who's who's subbing in for the Argos on this on this play? You know, they're bringing in uh, the in a new slot back and a new wide receiver and an extra offensive lineman. So who's coming out? I'm I'm literally counting if We got three guys off because three guys just went on, and you know, and on defense, it's the same thing. So I would love to see it back to like say a 40-man roster with a different clock rules. Uh, those are, in my opinion, not even all that radical to, pr- to propose. Radical would be go to four downs or go to or go to some other some other variation that would maybe make it so the real disincentive to to punting and field goals or something. I don't know. Right. But uh, right. Well, I mean, you know, just I, like, I love I love returns. So I don't I don't want to make it sound like I don't love kick returns because I, I do. But but I wish teams would go for it more often, you know, like maybe maybe it's a two point convert. It becomes a three point convert. So there's real value in going for it. Whatever. I don't know. Right. So.
3: Right. Well, you know, going back to what you said just about the roster size. Uh, to me, it makes kind of sense considering the financial, the, the financial going out. You don't have to pay, I mean, yeah. you don't have to pay guys as much, I guess, is what yeah. I'm trying to say. And in a, a league like the CFL, where each team only gets about maybe four and a half million to cover their payroll expenses from that TV contract. Have, has do you know if the league has talked about that? Is any do, what yeah do you... I
13: I don't know. I mean I of course there is a there is a, a union the CFLPA and they would never want to see the real oh, roster okay. scaled back. I mean in theory if you if you're able to bring in a tenth franchise, then there's fifty to sixty jobs over there. That, you know you could so you could whittle down the other, whittle down the roster elsewhere by we'll take away let's say we take five people off everybody's roster, that's 45 jobs off 19. Okay, we'll put those 45 over in a new franchise and we, we net out the same. but in reality the CFLpa would be the last thing they would agree to, to would be would be roster size reductions. There's also there's the complicating factor of, of the, the the American players versus the Canadian players. You know, there's a, there's a mandate, of course, to have X number of Canadians on the roster. Which which, as a Canadian, I'm happy that there's lots of Canadians playing Canadian football, but they they're a limited, they're in limited supply. Really good quality Canadian football players are in far more limited supply than really good quality American football players because we're only one tenth the size of the United States, and so when you're going to have 22 Canadians on roster and 21 Americans. Those Canadians, some of them can command a pretty big buck. Uh, disproportionate. I mean, if I'm if I'm a starting offensive tackle with a Canadian birth certificate, I can be paid. I'm going to be paid a lot more than a starting American offensive tackle is going to get paid. Uh, that's just a reality. And so, you know, I'm not I'm not advocating throwing it open to say let's have you know, let them let them hire any players they want. Because you'd end up with, you know, a lot of Canadians would lose their jobs. So I don't really have an answer for this, but it certainly does skew the salary thing quite a bit. You look at some of the, I mean, salary figures, you know, we don't know how real they are. You see some of them published in various places uh, and who knows how, how legitimate some of them are. But I think it's pretty widely accepted that certain Canadian starters make significantly more than Americans starting at the same position make because, those americans are kind of a dime a dozen and the canadians aren't if you're good enough to start in in the cfl in one of the seven guaranteed starting spots for canadians the trouble is there you don't have you you don't have great backups behind you because again the supply is short in some cases you you know the the guy who behind you if you got hurt can't step in and actually be maybe as good as you are so you can command a lot of money and that that's use the salary thing they're going to cba is expiring it's expiring after the great cup and they're in for a very interesting negotiation heading into next year um the leagues the league has certainly talked about having some pretty serious financial challenges and COVID obviously didn't help in fact it made it much much worse but it was already in trouble before then in my and I, they're going to have to have some kind of a recalibration to make this thing work, I think, going forward, including, I believe, revenue sharing among the nine franchises, which I believe MLSE is going to be demanding, um, you know, because Saskatchewan makes a pile of money, the Argos lose a pile of money. So How's that fair? The NFL has a form of revenue sharing. They allow teams to, to do some sales, some sponsorships and things within their own markets, but the vast majority of the NFL's revenue is shared league-wide. Uh, so everybody comes out, of comes starts the year with enough money to pay their bills and then have a profit. Right. Uh, I don't know if they could do that in the CFL, but maybe they could come at least have an, everybody could have enough so that they don't start your ten million dollars in the hole like maybe the Argos do. I don't know, right? So,
3: yeah. Well, yeah. and also with the gambling. Do we know how big of an impact gambling had this year?
13: Well, it, it hasn't had much yet because it's they're still waiting for the for the the Canadian laws to to there was a law passed, I believe it was passed, but it it has to now be enacted in the various provinces. And so they're, 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 they're waiting for it to become wide open. There's no doubt that the, the governments across the country are going to make gambling a wide open thing. You're going to have sports books legally able to operate in canadian jurisdiction very soon and this believes this is a big potential savior i worry that it's not as much of a savior as they may think because i'm not 100 percent convinced that that the, the people that will take advantage of the opportunity to bet are younger people that you'd like to bring into the for the long term they may be older they may be more sort of my age or something in the middle ages and up and you know you need you need to get the 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 millennials and the and the and the generation xers to be to be interested in your in your product i mean it can't hurt it's just certainly got potential to bring in some revenue and but the thing is you know again like here's the problem right in the nfl you got 32 teams you got 16 games every week Lots of opportunities to gamble. In the CFL, you got four games per week. And, and you paying sometimes you're playing the same team three weeks in a row. Like, how's that exciting for gamblers? I, I just don't. This is why I thought the XFL thing, if you could have a nine team XFL. 19 Cfl with with a degree of overlocking interlocking schedules but still playing the bulk of your games in your own country and then you end up still having a great cup champion awarded to the canadian champions and then the week after you have the the combined leagues playing for a championship now you're going to have nine games a week you got four games a week, and you're going to have some paid hey, The Argos are playing in L.A. Hey, that's cool. Who's playing for L.A.? Like you know, it's got but it had potential in my view to, to, to get younger people interested, and certainly if you want to if you want to sell gambling stuff, you got to have more than four opportunities per week. I just don't know that there's going to be a huge amount of, of interest in CFL data. I mean a lot of those leagues are counting on selling data to to the to the to the to the gaming institutions, right? Um, they're they're planning on they want to sell content to gamblers and get the gamblers, you know, to to pay for the content and then pay money into gamble on on the games. I just I don't know four games a week it just seems the CFL is really small. You know it's been it's the same size it was in 1954. Right. And then we
3: have the rumors out there that are running rampant and there's room, there's reporting on rumors and then there's rumors being reported as fact and yeah, yeah. you know how I feel I get very worked up yeah. about rumors being yeah. reported in fact and I'll say it straight oh, yeah. up. The reason why I'm that way is because I got sent to Iraq based on a rumor. So, so that's I get a good reason, worked. man. That's a yeah. very good reason. Yeah. And I get very worked up and, you know, without going into too much detail on some news organizations reporting it as fact, it's going to happen. Others, well, you know, we're just reporting the fact that there's, there's a rumor out there, yeah. but where do you see, and I'm kind of, I'm like with you, you know, I, I'm, I'm a traditionalist when it comes to the CFL. I want to see the game as it is, but also co- recognizing the fact that, Hey, something's got to change because You can't keep operating in a deficit in a private enterprise indefinitely. And when you have an organization like the Toronto Argonauts being owned by a very big organization, but at some point they're going to get tired of losing money. Yeah. So, and we don't know what the XFL really is going to bring. I mean, the history, obviously there were five games and, you know, I mean, they stopped because of a pandemic and we don't know if they would have, how they would have been at the end of that season. So the question is, where do you think? I guess my question to you is, where where do you think we're where do you think we're headed to with the season? Well,
13: that that is that is for sure the, the sixty four million dollar question up here. I mean, I, to, what's going to happen with with MLSC and the Toronto Argonauts is really is really the question. The rest of the league, I think, is is in is 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 in okay. Excuse me, in okay shape. Uh, there's new ownership in BC, and you know uh, he seems to be a well-healed individual, and hopefully he's going to put some money into investing in that troubled market. We've got a new owner in Montreal. Hopefully they're going to put some money into investing into that troubled market. MLSE is the is the big mystery here. What are they going to do? I I agree with you completely, Greg. I don't. They're just. I don't believe they're going to sustain losses forever. I mean, I I did see that. I've said this before. To, I may have said it to you guys when I was on before, but I, I certainly have said it elsewhere. LSE is not, I believe, in the business of necessarily turning a profit on all of its ventures, but they are in the business, I believe, of growing the enterprise value of all of its ventures. And you know, we—I just saw a story today. There was a new new valuation out uh, by Forbes, which is a you know, a, you know, I, I get you know, it's it's still journal minutes we don't there's no way of really knowing how much any value any franchise is worth unless it actually sells and then you know what it sold for but forbes annually values professional sports franchises and they just did hockey and they've got the new york rangers valued at two two billion dollars and they've got the toronto maple leafs valued at 1.8 billion dollars and i think that's probably a reasonable valuation of the of the leafs 1.8 billion i think their last valuation of the raptors which was a while ago was at 1.4 billion well, you know what, MLSE did not pay 1.4 billion for the Raptors. They were not when that, when they got ownership of the Raptors way way back, like 20 20 odd years ago. They paid a lot less, and so that that enterprise has in, increased significantly in value. Uh, you only realize the value if you sell it, but it's never a bad thing to be sitting on a valuable property. Uh, here's the problem: they've got they've got the, the Leafs and Raptors and S- somewhat surprisingly, Toronto FC, and soccer team, which seems to have a valuation of maybe $600 million, which doesn't make a lot of sense because MLS TV ratings are terrible.
4: They are, they're horrible. But, but, they,
13: but they do draw, they didn't draw very well this year. But prior to the pandemic, M- TFC drew 20 plus thousand every game in, in BMO, and they had a rabid, passionate fan base. Whether they will get that back next year, we'll have to see. I mean, It showed real bad signs of going downhill this year. And there are people that will tell you that MLS is the whole thing is just this Ponzi scheme built on bringing in more expansion money, constantly lining our pockets with more and more expansion money. And eventually they're gonna run out of places to expand to and then the thing's gonna collapse. I don't know because I actually do think that one, one thing we do know is that worldwide, soccer is growing in popularity. I mean, never been a, the English Premier League has never been bigger globally than it is now. The World Cup and the Euros ne- have never been bigger than they are now. So soccer as a, as a, as a global sport, is, is it's the biggest global sport. I mean, Basketball is growing at probably second now. So if you figure that there's going to be some spinoff of that into North America, maybe that explains why Toronto FC is valued at $600 million. Maybe it's not a real value. Maybe you couldn't find, in fact, I doubt you could find somebody that would give you $600 million for TFC right now. But the fact is, I think MLSE paid $10 million for it for the franchise as an expansion franchise. And it's definitely worth more than $10 million now, even if it's not worth $600 million. The Argos, what could you get for the Argos if you were to sell them? Like zero. I don't know. You couldn't get $10 million for that team right now. So if you, if they're about growing the enterprise value, this is, where's is this, where does this go? How do they get the Argos enterprise value grown? I, that's a, why I think MLSC was interested in exploring the XFL because I think they saw the potential for a, a, a league that would maybe twice as big with American franchises, with American TV money, with potentially global TV money and global streaming rights money. If you did this the smart right way, it's not going to be as big as the NFL, but it wouldn't be going up against the NFL. It would come, it would start the week after the NFL is finished. You play spring and summer football. You get six, 52 weeks a year for people to gamble and to pay streaming fees and to get excited about the games. I think that's what they, why they were pushing for it. I mean, I don't know for a fact that they were, but I believe they were. And what I don't know is, that were they pushing for it hard enough that they might walk away from the CFL and say, we're going in with you guys? Probably not yet, but the XFL is not starting until 2023. Maybe sometime in 2022, we're going to hear MLSE say, we're going to take a franchise in the XFL. We're not killing the Argos, but we're going to take a franchise in the XFL as well. Well, Or they might say we're killing the Argos. I hope not. That would be the worst scenario possible. But I don't know that they're going to stay alive. This just can't continue the way it is. Arguably, they haven't done enough to sell the product, but I'm not sure anything they could do would work. And they have done more than they've been given credit for doing. So Right. Well, and, you know, you're talking about them just, hey, well, we're
3: going to put a team in Toronto. It's not going to be called the Argos. Going to put another team. I mean, to me, that actually makes the most sense to maybe test run it, market it. Well, I'd actually make it the
13: Argos. I'd make, them, I'd make them two different Argos, the XFL Argos and the CFL Let's yeah. Keep the colors. Keep the. It's 150 years of tradition. I think there's value in that. Right. I well, think the and, XFL. One of the, one of the things the XFL would have liked about a merger or a, or a uh, you know whatever you'd want to call it maybe merger is the wrong word right. was the fact that they could have been associated with a with a brand that had been around for 150 years. Right. So to yeah. me, it's again, I think that could work. the The, the challenge is: Are, are people going to buy tickets for both? Are you going to attract a completely different audience for the for the XFL? Maybe you would. Maybe you get all the young kids. And, but what does that do to your, your ticket sales for the CFL team? I don't know. Like to me, it's, it, it has to be done in a way, if you're going to do that, you got to do it in a way that you're going to put a hell of a lot of effort into both. I, I still think I, I'm the only guy in the world. I think that thinks of, but I still think a merger was, that was the answer. Um, you know, maybe like make 2023, the last great cup or 2022 or 2023, the last great cup, as we know it, and then, and then whatever the next year is, you start playing football in, in April, you go to some, you finish on Labor Day, basically. Uh, but if everybody, every other football fan in Canada thinks I'm nuts, right? So
3: Well, I mean, it goes to, and it, it, it goes to, we don't know what they talked about. We don't know what was laid out. And that's kind of the frustrating part because we don't know. So all we're yeah. left with is speculation and, yeah. You know, from unknown sources and, you know, from well-placed people, but we don't know, you know, and I'm not saying people are, are false reporting, but there's a lot of information, more information out there that we don't know than what we currently yeah, well know. Well,
13: well, two points on that, Greg. One is, I, I think it's pretty evident, this is the CFL is heading into its most important offseason probably ever. This yeah. week, There's a lot of things that have got to get dealt with properly this in the next Eight months before football gets started playing again on the field, uh, and it's there's a, some major, major challenges awaiting them. The other thing I would say on your on your point about the reporting, pay attention to what you're reading from reputable journalists: Dan Ralph, uh, Daniel Austin. Uh, I'm going to leave a whole pile of names So Jeff Hamilton. There's know, there's, there's, there's right. a handful of them around, around the country who have good sources and who work those sources. There's all, sadly, there's not as many of them as there used to be, right. uh, but pay attention. Guys, don't pay attention to the, to the, to the people that are churning out rumors. And sadly, there are supposed news sites at times that, that just repeat rumors as if they were fact. Now, having said that, if a reputable journalist reports something and says sources tell me, if it's a reputable journalist, I tend to think it's likely true because yeah. I know I work with Dan Ralph. Dan Ralph is a fantastic reporter for Canadian yeah. Press. If Dan yeah. if Dan says he's learned something, he's learned it, right? Yeah. And uh, I would say the same about Austin and Hamilton and and you know a few other people around the league whose names are just not coming to, off the top of my head. Uh, Steve Milton and Hamilton. Uh, if those people who start reporting league. or or information that they've uncovered behind the scenes you could probably assume that there's where there's smoke there's fire if it's if it's you know if it's coming from something that isn't that doesn't have a journalistic track record of putting it through the the appropriate journalistic standards and practices and scott knows all about this as i do then it's it's not worth the paper it's written on right
3: yeah and you know i mean tim capper made a comment um with the alice flight deck I think he wrote, I think I can't remember if he said it or not, but anyway, he said, for those who are great, you know, CFL fans or we're excited the season's starting, don't think the problems are behind us with the start of the new season. (laughs) Whole set of problems coming up. And I'm like you, it's like, you know, and I'm trying to, and I'm like you, I I was not I wasn't against the XFL at all because I I think we've reached that day and age here, God, going into the third decade of the 21st century. Well, things have to change because if ch- things don't change, things aren't going to survive.
13: Well, the trend, the trend lines are really bad. I mean, right. you know, yeah. I, I, I saw a stat on, on, on uh, Twitter this past week. I, I, and I'm pretty sure it, if I didn't actually verify, I didn't go back and look, but I it came from somebody who I think would have looked it up and would have been legitimate. I think attendance in the CFL has fallen year over year, every year since 2012. Uh, and in every market, it's fallen year over year, almost every year, except for, I think, three times when it blipped up once in Toronto, once in Vancouver and once somewhere else. Yeah. So like the tennis has been declining, man, for a decade and TV ratings are not going in the right direction. Uh, and, you know, this. I mean, obviously, COVID really hurts everything, you know. But we, I mean, Argos had 6,000, 8,000 fans in that building a few times. Montreal had some games like that. Ottawa had some games like that. Uh, Edmonton had games with like twenty thousand, and they always used to get thirty-five thousand dollars without even trying. The thirty-five thousand people, I mean. So, 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 yeah, it's 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 there are there are serious problems for this league. Uh, the, everybody would have had red ink this year. Um, and that's with only paying players five and a half million dollars combined. So what do you do next year? Do you take the salary cap back to 3 million and tell everybody you're going to take, you're going to play for half or you're, or buy? Like, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure that would solve the problem, frankly. And it, and it, it would damage the, you know, the brand equity it people would look like, oh, now it's gone. Now it's gone semi pro. So I don't know. They've got, they do have serious, serious problems, um, and that's where I thought the XFL thing at least had potential to be creative, new thinking that might lead us somewhere that's worth a try. Uh, because I, like, I mean, I, I said the whole from the beginning of the XFL talks, I said I want to be able to go and watch football in Toronto. I I would love it to be the Argos in the Canadian Football League, but if there's no Argos in the Canadian Football League, I, I like if if that's if that's the alternative, then I'll take the Argos in the XFL if, there's nothing at all, right? right I'd rather have I'd rather have the Argos and the XFL than no football here in this market. Um, and if the Argos do end up being pulled out of the league by MLSE, then some people speculate they'll throw the keys on the table. Well, I don't know what the league's going to do, I don't know how long they can sustain running uh, running the franchise and losing money. Uh, and if they try to run a team in Toronto, The value of your TV property goes way down. The value of your sponsorships goes way down. It then becomes like the Canadian Premier League, which is like the small town time sister to the MLS. Yeah, there's teams in in Hamilton and Ottawa and Edmonton, and they draw three or four thousand people a game. And you don't, you know, Bo Levi Mitchell is not going to be making seven hundred dollars in a CFL that has no Argonauts. Right. Right.
3: Well, could you see? And this is uh, this is just not even. This is just like thinking, you know, I'm not even speculating, but the NFL made comments that they were looking north to Canada to expand and expand the game. I mean, the NFL made of money. So them building like here in Chicago, the bears are going to build a new stadium. Well, that money's not coming from the state and the mayor here has already said, yeah, screw you. We're not paying for it, but there's a whole market up there. That's literally untapped for the NFL of canadian fans
13: well i would actually disagree completely on that point Greg. they've, okay. they've got the they've got they've got to see they've got canada captured completely like no they, i mean in terms they're, of they're, just they're, having teams up there but but you don't need teams that's the whole point yeah. they've they've already they already own the market basically right like they, 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 they they've got a ton their games are on tons of their games are on tv here every week you walk around any any big in canada on a sunday you're going to see people walking into bars wearing nfl jerseys you don't need a single team okay. to and 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 if they got a team up here it wouldn't move the needle one bit on the ratings for cbs or fox or nbc well i guess that's what i was going to
3: ask you do you do you think the nfl would make more money by put i guess putting more team expansion teams in Not,
13: but, no, i think i think they might make more but i don't think i don't think it's a material gain. Okay. We'd be way better off putting teams in London and, and and Munich or, you know, get a European division or something like that. I just, I don't honestly think I think that the NFL already gets tons of revenue out of Canada. I don't think the amount we, the amount they would get from a single franchise in Toronto is sufficient to justify it. Uh, and of course, you've got the fact that we, you know, our dollar is worth 70 cents US or something. So a stadium that would cost you one and a half billion dollars in the States would cost you two billion in Canada. The franchise would cost you two billion or more. I just i don't see it being a likely thing to happen anytime soon um i don't honestly i know the nfl makes noise about it from time to time and maybe they've maybe they're seeing some picture that i'm not seeing but i just think it would not significantly increase revenue to the existing nfl franchises to the point where they should be saying yeah let's do it i i could see them one in london and maybe mexico city but i don't see it in toronto so Again, maybe that's me being a Pollyanna. There's no question an NFL franchise in Toronto would be incredibly successful, just like the Raptors are. Uh, there's big enough market to support an NFL franchise. Although again, you only have ten dates per year, and how do, I don't know how you how you get the return on investment because i i don't see any government up here putting money into a stadium especially right. a two billion dollar stadium and so with the, okay who's, gonna, and who's with, gonna who's gonna spend that money and how are you right. gonna get your money return on and, your investment
3: and with the bills wanting a new stadium too there's always they could conceivably say we're gonna build a stadium in canada i mean well the nfl wants if they, yeah, the NFL
13: has said all along they want to protect the Bills, right? They want to protect right. that market. And that's the reason Bruce McNoah wasn't able to put it to the franchise back here in 1991, that the NFL was not going to let the Bills get damaged. Uh, I believe, you know, Roger Goodell, I think, is from Western New York. I think he actually doesn't want to hurt the Bills. Uh, okay. uh, I think they'll get, a, they'll get a stadium in Western okay. New York, and they'll they'll be safe for the next 20 or 30 years until the next time a new stadium is needed. Um and but and and a, a, and a Toronto franchise would, to some extent, damage the Bills. It, it would. There's a there's maybe twenty percent of that of the, the 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 paying customers in Buffalo come across the border, so that would not be ideal for the for the for sure. Um, again, another reason why I think it's a, it's a, it's a tough it's a tough sell. Um, I just I think it's 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 handy for the NFL to throw Toronto out as speculation. Um, it, it makes you know it makes cities like chicago think oh my god could the bears move i mean i'm not suggesting that anybody's thinking the bears are going to move to toronto but you know if it was if it was jacksonville they would be worried about the jaguars moving to toronto right yeah. so and they might say well sure we'll we'll give you a new stadium uh so it's been a handy tool for the nfl over the years um but i just i just have a hard time seeing how it generates enough revenue to be justified you're not getting, there are they have a big TV contract now. I mean, the Bell Media, which owns, partly owns the Argonauts, has the exclusive NFL rights up here, and they they put up every week. They have games. They have two games at one, or, or two at four. Uh, actually, they have multiple because they've got they they play them in different regions. So they get, at one o'clock. I can usually watch at least three games. Four o'clock, I can usually watch at least two games. Some weeks, I can watch four or five games, and it's all through Bell's contract to show games in Canada. So, Scott, Scott I've def- been dominating. You can jump in. <laughs> oh no, no, no Scott, no. I,
5: I defer to the
4: next question to you. No, i You've you asked all of them.
13: I'm good. <laughs> well, well, I'm glad you were a Donegan fan back with the, with the Birmingham uh, <laughs> franchise. I've, I think that that's a very interesting season, and I, I it's fun to watch those games. They're very entertaining.
4: They really are, and a whole lot better than the 17 to 12 games we got gotten this year. <laughs> yep.
3: Oh, yep. It was, yeah. No, if you're if you're if you were new to the CFL, this was not the season to really sink yeah. your teeth into because it was. I wouldn't say the games were hard, but it, it was just not what. If you're a CFL fan, it's like, wait a minute, it's three to nothing, and you're like, yeah. What? Yeah, yeah I would rush home and get like questions what, like, yeah,
13: it, it's it's what the NFL used to be like in the '70s, right? Like this right. six six to three at halftime. Uh, and in the CFL in the, in the eighties and nineties, you know, it might've been, it might've been 31 to 28 at halftime, you know, yeah. we just, it was, and it's not all about scoring. I like defense as much as I like offense, but it's, but right now the league is designed to be all about defense. Right. Uh, and, and we don't have as many chances for offense to happen because they don't let as many plays run as they used to. Yeah. Anyway, that's just rehashing the old argument. So.
3: <laughs> well, Hey, before we let you go, what do you got? Are you working on anything next? And where can people find you?
13: Uh, not working on anything yet. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I uh, I may or may not have a book or two in me still, but I've got a I got a few ideas kind of percolating, but I'm not sure that they're they're sellable. Uh, and actually, I'm kind of waiting to see what happens with with Canadian football over the next year. Is if if it if it really takes a drastic change, then that might. Work a deeper dive. Um where they can find me well I'm on twitter at pxw13. Uh the book is for sale anywhere you can buy books uh, in the states of course it can you can you probably won't find it too often in a in a in a, in a Barnes and Noble's location but they will order them for you and and and, and you can get it in your local Barnes and noble of course you get it on amazon um you can buy it through sutherland house which is the publishing company up in canada i don't know if they ship free to the states they might i know they i know they ship free within canada um but it's it's we had a big we had a big screw- up on amazon that kept it held it up for a couple of months yeah no from getting released to people <laughs> and that was really annoying but uh it's been it's been the backlog has been cleared so so the good news is that you order it now you should be able to get it before christmas and uh, uh anybody that wants to buy it i'd be happy to have you buy it it's <laughs> well, I, I i don't think i'm going to make the best sellers list but I, I i'm happy to report that it is supposedly in the printing and uh you know anybody that's that's read it that i've heard from seems to have really enjoyed it i appreciate your kind words about it and uh, uh you know we'll uh, we'll just keep plugging along and maybe there'll be another one down the road who knows
3: yeah well i hey, hope
4: they- so i'm um, no go ahead
3: oh go ahead scott i'm sure
4: no i'm just saying yeah it was i'm, I'm glad i bought it it's just a fantastic book and I'm, I'm so glad you wrote it i'm so glad it's out there in the world
13: well, thank yeah. you so much. It was a lot of work, right? Four and a half years, and, a lot, and there were times I wondered if I could ever figure out how to piece it all together because it was so complex and so many elements and angles. But in the end, I think it came together fairly well. I had to I had to take some good stuff out. I mean, it, it ended up being eighty thousand words, and I I turned in a manuscript of a hundred thousand, and uh, mm-hmm. I I agreed with the with the cuts that were made. They did make sense, but there were some pretty good stories in there that i had to take out and so i kind of regret that a little bit there may be by the way i should say there there may be a a a chapter that i pulled completely um i've adapted it and i'm I think it might get published sometime in the next two weeks uh, uh up here in canada and if it does i will be putting it at links onto twitter it's a pretty cool chapter it didn't really fit into the book but it's a pretty cool chapter that a certain segment of the fan base particularly those who collect stuff would find pretty interesting i think so
3: oh really oh wow so stay, stay
13: tuned for that
3: oh looking forward to that and in the meantime i'll keep making my john candy memes for you too and please do do. we'll definitely kick those definitely keep kicking those out actually yeah maybe somebody
13: else hopefully a hollywood producer will see them and decide if it's a movie right so well you
3: know what your book is worthy of a movie i mean i know you got the kurt warner movie coming out here pretty soon but yeah yeah, this this book reads like a movie in in many ways i mean and you could even make you know you could even go from comedy to, to to drama Everywhere yeah. in between. And uh, the only question is who would play John Candy? And that's, I guess well I'm open
13: to suggestions on that because I'm actually trying to sort of uh, think about if we ever if they ever do were to do, but how would you cast it? if you've got any ideas? the one the one name that I came up with was, um, is it is it eric stone church the guy from modern Family? oh yeah
4: yeah from Modern so, Family, you know, that, the, be... my
13: wife came up with that one I thought, yeah that's that's a good idea so very yeah,
3: good idea yeah, that, is a good, that is a good one yeah it needs
13: to be it needs to be somebody big but funny and, and jovial and lovable right
3: and to capture so, uh, that spirit too right
13: right there you i go. mean and so,
3: that's uh, and that's the thing with john candy every movie he's in he's still got the same twinkle in his eye and there's always that
13: smile Absolutely. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's fun to watch the old, those movies. I, you can, I can't, I can't anytime I flip around and, and planes, trains, and automobiles on, I just have to stop and watch it. Right. Like I don't, yep. I haven't seen it 20 times. It's just too damn good.
3: Well, during our Thanksgiving holiday, one of the channels down here played it literally, I think over line? the course of a few days. And what I love about planes, trains, and automobiles, actually, most of the John Candy movies, uh, John Hughes, it's all filmed around Chicago. That's so right. Right. Um, there's there's a few scenes in planes, trains, and automobiles that I think are supposed to take place in New York. I go, wait a minute. I think that's my <laughs> office. And so those John Hughes films with John Candy are just in many ways, just a love letter to Chicago. Yeah. And it's always for me, you know, I work downtown and it's just nice when I watch those old movies to see how the city used to look. Yeah. Yeah. And it yeah. is. So yeah. with that said, We will uh, we will say goodbye here, but also to hold on here at at the end of this, we'll talk a little bit, a little bit more before uh, we we fully let you go. So, hey, for everybody who's listening, thank you. Thank you very much. And have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And uh, we will be back with you all soon. So, again, speaking, you know, on behalf of Scott, myself, Paul, thank you very much.
13: Well, thank you guys. I really enjoy always talking to you guys and uh, hopefully we'll do it again at some point in the in maybe 2022. And we'll have some maybe some good news about where things are going to, with the CFL at that point. Right. So thank you again. Thank All you. Right.
3: Well, thank you. You're welcome. All right. Take care, everybody. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And Scott and I will be back with you in January with uh, a new episode. Take care. Bye bye.
6: You can't stop. They pile up the points until they reach the...
0: We have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network.